Yes, this fic has been rated R. It's not quite evil enough to deserve an NC-17 rating. It's the Diet Coke of evil. For March 1st, 2007, this is episode 3 of Potterfic Weekly. Welcome to the place where the story never ends. Hey, Ron. The next time you're freaked at me for calling you out on the Quidditch pitch. Just remember that time. And welcome back to Potterfic Weekly. I am Ryan. And I'm Jen. That would be Jen right there. Jen is from the South, and I have difficulty <laughs> understanding her, too. Rena and Kim are on assignment this week, and they will be joining us in uh, Episode 4. So Jen was kind enough to jump in here with us tonight. If you haven't visited the Potterfic Weekly forums, we recommend that you do so. Jen is the honorary deputy headmistress of the Potterfic Weekly forums, and she was uh, great enough to jump in here with us tonight with all of these technical issues and uh, join us for our discussion discussion of chapters 8 through 11 of After the End, and we also have a uh, exciting segment to follow that tonight. We have a one-shot by a uh, wonderful fanfic writer named Dree. It is called Pictures of You, and it is housed over at Checkmated.com. It will be narrated this evening uh, by Danielle following our discussion of After the End, and we will have links to that in the show notes. So, do we have any news tonight, or (laughs) is there anything new we should be telling people in tonight's episode? We have got a lot of new members lately. We have a lot of new members in the forum. It's... it's, (laughs) Interesting, too, to think about, because when I was actually advertising uh, for the show and looking for people to join up with the podcast before it started, I went to the Leaky Lounge, I went to MuggleCast's uh, Lounge, I went to all of the various forums, and it was very intimidating if you're a new person to go to these forums, because they have thousands of members, and you don't know where to post, and when you post, you get an email five minutes later saying you posted incorrectly and resubmit <laughs> your post, and it was very it was very concerning for me, so if you have experienced Intimidating. It is very intimidating. So if you have experienced this in the past and you are looking maybe for a community to just join up with that is a lot smaller, you can you know meet people and actually have a have a conversation with them. We urge you to uh, join up with the Potherfic Weekly Forum. It is actually at potherficforum.com. Uh, Jen will be there when you arrive to yes, guide to guide you through the um, the orientation process. And we actually have a new feature this week. <laughs> you can be sorted into um, houses, and we just set up actually uh, before the podcast tonight common rooms, so all of the members of the, of the various houses can talk in peace. Know, without being overheard by the Slytherins. I Which, found this very traumatizing. Why was this traumatizing for you? <laughs> because I was just so indecisive on which house I wanted. I so desperately wanted to be a Slytherin, I think, in my heart. 
Yeah. You know, but in talking to my husband, there's yeah. absolutely no way that I'm a Slytherin. Well, you're the most unSlytherin person I've ever met. But other than that, I thought maybe it was <laughs> like know. a, I thought it could be like a Harry thing, you know, Gryffindor, 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 and maybe you know there was just some part of you, and I was trying so hard to find your inner Slytherin, and I just got no response. So we just. We, we, I know, and I tried. It just wasn't there. It was. And man, I kept there. trying that. The more I tried to talk myself into it, the more I realized how much I wasn't it. So those of you who join Ravenclaw House, you know, stop by and see and see uh, see Jen in the common rooms. And you a Hufflepuff. This is true. I, I, I thought it perfect. I am the head of Hufflepuff House, and because I am headmaster of the forums, any member of my house gets priority seating in the Great Hall. So um, let's <laughs> let's move into some feedback that we have, and this is so much easier having Jen in the podcast because usually all of our feedback is actually from Jen, so now she's here, so this takes the pressure off of me to have to remember <laughs> all of the, <laughs> to remember all of the uh, the thoughts that she uh, that she had. Uh, we have a uh, very special um, piece of feedback that we would like to actually open with this evening. We received received a voicemail from Xenia, uh, who is lurking in the shadows. She is listening to the show. She is enjoying it very much. That's definitely not meant as kudos to us. We're very honored that she's listening um, and that she's taking something from the show. I get the sense that after the end has been something that she hasn't thought about in a while, and she's getting very nostalgic going through everything again. So we're glad that we could offer her that for everything that she has offered us. She answered a lot of questions that we had asked in the show, and she gave some insight, some very interesting insight into some of the, um, the behind-the-scenes construction of After the End. And I am trying so hard I'm going to sit on what I know because we have an interview with her coming up in a few weeks and if I say everything she's told me all we're going to have left to ask is who is her favorite you know food network star so we're just I'm really trying to sit on that but there is uh, one thing that she mentioned in her voicemail that Rena Kim and myself completely skipped over in last week's episode so I do want to play a little snippet of Xenia's response to uh, episode two of Potterfic Weekly. So here now is Xenia. Um, one of the things that I never realized we were kind of right about is Moody Harry. Because um, one of the things that always strikes me when reading the actual books is how polite Harry is. I was just, I've been listening to, um, I decided to start listening to all the books during my long commute. So then I'm up to speed on everything when Deathly Hallows comes out in July. And, you know, <clears throat> Harry is so polite and so nice, and yes, he gets a little angsty sometimes, but it wasn't really until Order of the Phoenix that he starts screaming at people, and um, I remember at the time, we were really sort of freaked out about it at first, like, what is up with Harry? Um, and then I realized, sort of, I think it's brilliant of J.K. Rowling to portray him like a 15-year-old boy, I mean, that's, or a 15-year-old girl for that matter, I mean, that's what 15-year-olds do, no offense, is they scream a lot and spaz out a lot, and... Um, that's kind of what Harry is doing a little bit and after the end. Um, he's not 15 anymore at that point, but um, he's letting that behavior go. So, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I guess we always saw Harry as having the potential to be kind of a moody guy. Well, I really think it's, it's hysterical that they didn't give themselves credit for, getting, for doing it first. You know, for saying, you know, good job, Joe Rowling, you got it right. But actually, we went there first. <laughs> Oh, I, just talking to, to Xenia a little bit, they are the most humble people you know in the world. They're so fun to listen to. She actually left that little segment we just played as part of an eight-minute voicemail, and about halfway through it, um, she mentioned, I hope you guys are still listening, and I felt like writing back to her, no, we turned you off after a couple of minutes because you were taking up too much of oh our time. God. It was it was funny, but you're, <laughs> but 
but you're absolutely right in that analysis. Um, they, you know, predicted so much correctly, and it's so hard for me because I'm going back and I'm reviewing after the end, and I'm trying to take notes, I'm trying to analyze it, and it's so hard for me to keep in my head that all they had to go with was Goblet of Fire, and it's so hard for me to turn back the clock because when you look at you know what they've created, so much of it panned out that you almost forget that this wasn't written yesterday. This was written years and years ago. Well, it's absolutely uncanny. I mean, it's completely insane that they wrote the exact character, you know, how Jenny becomes Jenny, how Harry, you know, he becomes really moody and upset, that they they created that world. I know it's just unfathomable that they got it right after Goblet of Fire. It's believable. It's so believable because after Goblet of Fire, we were all expecting Harry to be, you know, obviously traumatized and upset and moody. I was extremely impressed. It so follows canon that it could so easily... You know, saying that horcruxes and things haven't happened, it could have easily followed even book seven, I think. As I was taking notes uh, in preparation for tonight's episode, I actually have a few things circled saying, did this happen in Goblet of the Fire? Because there's no way they could actually know something in such detail. But it just, it blows my mind. I'm actually grabbing my copy of Goblet of the Fire saying, where was that in here? How did they know that was? Um, I think there's a reference to, um, in tonight's episode, um, Weasley Wizarding Wheezes. And I, I didn't remember that actually being in Goblet of the Fire. I, I didn't remember they came up with a name. I thought that was in Order of the Phoenix, but it must have been, because how do you come mm-hmm. up with Weasley Wizarding Wheezes on a whim? So let's jump into the uh, discussion segment of tonight's show. Um, we are going to be discussing chapters 8 through 11, which is the apparition exam right up to, I believe, confrontations and confidences. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's jump in here. Uh, did you have any thoughts on... The apparition exam chapter, you actually posted a few things on that um, on the forums. It begins with uh, Ginny waiting for Remus to come down in the morning, and she's playing with Crookshanks on the floor of the living room of Lupin Lodge, I believe. I think what I liked about this chapter was that this was the first time that I ever realized that Ginny appreciated the alone time. I think earlier I posted somewhere like, where is Jenny during all this? What is she doing? Why is she not with everyone else? You know, because if I was the little sister, I would make it an effort to be around the bigger, the older kids. You know, I would want that relationship with, but, you know, she keeps disappearing for a long period of time. And then, you know, Arabella and Zinnia tell us where she is afterwards. And you're just like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. But then in this chapter, you know, she's laying on the floor, she's playing with Kirk Shanks. The first time we're seeing how much she is loving the alone time, the quiet time. And it made me think for the first time what it must have been like for her growing up with, you know, six older brothers oh, or yeah. five, I guess five, and never having peace or quiet time. Absolutely. And it's a really cool dynamic when you think about the character of Ginny because, and this comes out later in the chapter, she flashes back to the final battle. And you see how calm and how collected she is and she remembers the promise that she made to die for Harry and she knows that Harry is about to die and with absolute certainty she steps between Harry and Lucius Malfoy and is prepared to take the death curse for him and you just think about that this is a 16 year old girl doing this and you just have to think about the level of maturity that she has to have to you know be able to make the decision you know number one on the whim and number two to actually implement it to, to take that step and with no doubt in your mind to stand between the person you love and, and, and you know the, the the curse that will kill him and then you just look in this chapter and she's a little kid playing with a cat 
And it's just, it's such a cool dynamic because it could be so easy to just butcher the character of Ginny and to make her into, you know, superwoman and, you know, knows all the answers and is completely calm and has no issues at all and is just the perfect character. And which is actually one of the complaints I have about what they do to Hermione in the movies. I think they make her into Super Hermione. The chapter progresses, you know, Remus comes down the stairs and he begins to garden with Ginny. And I thought it was an interesting little choice too. You get to see Ginny's apprehension at asking Remus, um, you know, just if she can garden with him and spend some time with him because she doesn't know him very well. And that's one thing that just jumped out at me reading this. You don't see that in a lot of fix. You see, uh-huh. you know, Ginny had Professor Lupin, you know, back in her, I believe it was her second year um, for yeah, defense against the, for defense against the dark arts. So I think there's just this tendency in fix that if characters have ever met, they become almost like best friends and they know each other. That's not the way the real world works. You meet someone and maybe you have them as a teacher. Then a few years goes by and you're around them again and maybe you're a little bit formal. And I just, I, I thought that was interesting too. It wasn't like she's like, hey, Remus, old buddy, old pal. It was, she actually, you know, was a little nervous and she was being very formal. You know, can I come out and garden with right. you? I just thought that was a cool choice as well. Well, she, well, she even says at some point that he's so reserved. You know, he's not, he as as nice and calm as he is, he doesn't have that ability that Sirius has. You know, that infectious that you yeah. can just walk up to them and start a conversation. It's, it's not easy. For, with Remus as it is with Sirius or other people. He has that standoffish kind of way about him. Yeah, and I think that's just a credit to A&Z's writing in that when you look at, especially when you go back to Chapter 7 and you just look at the way they write Remus, he's not the alternate godfather for Harry. He's not the wise old man who knows everything. He's a very troubled person. He has a very lonely existence. You get the impression that when the war is over, everything's fine. You know, everyone has freedom. Everyone can do whatever they want. Not so with Remus. He's still a werewolf. He still is trapped in that werewolf existence. He can't find work. He's just you know very horrible. Yes, it's it's a horrible existence, and that is factored into the writing. He's not the most approachable person in the world. He's not someone who you know you can walk up to and he's jovial Uncle Remus. He's someone who maybe you have to get in good with, maybe someone that you have to develop a rapport with. And I think you see that a lot in this chapter. I think you see Remus develop a very strong rapport with Ginny. And it's something that needs to be earned. And I just like the fact that they don't treat us like idiots as they write the scene and they don't just assume, you know, they're going to start everybody off being best buddies. You actually get to see these characters who've been through war and hell together and you actually get to see them just forge those bonds. I just think that's just a really cool thing to see in a fanfic. Yeah, I completely agree. Now, let's talk about this, because I know you've been sitting on this one for a while, and while we don't yet know uh, what is happening with Ginny, for those of you who read up to Chapter 11 and didn't go further, (laughs) something is obviously going on here, and I love the way, as with everything, or as I should say with most things, Arabella and Xenia drop things into their writing, which come up a few chapters, or in this case, a few lines later, and just slap you in the face, and you you feel as though you're a fool for you know, interpreting it that way. And you have Ginny in the garden. She's planting pumpkins with Remus. And I just love the moment too, where Ginny is trying to perform the spell to make the holes in the ground and she can't do it. And you can just picture her. She's outside. She's probably biting on her tongue and she's trying to get this spell to work. That's not going through. And she screams damn at the top of her lungs. And Remus just looks (laughs) over and says, that's the girl from my class. And I completely forgot that. Yeah. They dropped that line in in an earlier chapter. They dropped in that, you know, 
she swore quite often in defense against the dark arts. I just thought that was a really cool touch. <laughs> and you get to see Ginny, you know, work so hard and she's so proud of herself and she, and she gets the spell to work right. And she, you can, you can just picture Ginny as the person that tries to open the coffee jar and can't get it to work. And after five minutes, she hucks the thing out the window. You can just, you can just picture her. She tries it once, and if it doesn't work, she gets frustrated. And I just loved how Remus kind of sat her down and gave her tips and gave her just a little bit of encouragement, and she got it to work. And that's then just... he stepped right back into the teacher's role, which, you know, that's how we see Remus. And so I just felt like cheering whenever, whenever he has any sort of teacher-esque conversation with anyone else. Yeah, it's like there's Remus. There no, he is. Exactly, and that was it, was. it was just a cool little touch. I mean, so many other fix would have jumped yes. right to the plot. And then we have the line where Jimmy is separating the dead seeds from the plantable seeds, and Remus remarks, "Oh, we're out of seeds." And she says, "Well, these ones are dead," and holds them out to him. And he looks at her with a peculiar expression, and she says, "Well, yes. can't can't you tell these are dead? I'm, I have it's, no trouble." It's just like it's obvious. Yeah, it's it's obvious. Can't you tell these are dead? And he looks at her, and he's very calm, and he smiles and says, well, we just have to go to the store and get more. And doesn't say another word about it. And you can tell... Does that sound weird? <laughs> well, I thought that was very weird. Well... That he... You know, as you're reading it the first time, without a reread, mm-hmm. that he didn't put up any type of, well, how do you know? Or, why would you think that? Which is fair, too, and it's interesting because you don't know how much he had been suspecting before, and he's been around Jenny for now, you know, a few weeks, and he was obviously with her, you know, at Hogwarts prior to and during the the battle. Maybe there were some things he was suspecting about her, and you just don't know. I mean, because one of the high points of of this fic is that not every scene is, is written from every character's perspective, so we get to hear from Remus every few chapters every now and then, but we don't get him all the time. So if this scene were written from Remus's perspective, it would have been fascinating to see what he thought of this, but we don't. We get it from right. Jenny's perspective. So he's very closed off. And, and you can tell he thought something was up. You can tell he, you know the light bulb goes on above his head, but he keeps it all very reserved. Just like Remus, he keeps it all close to his chest. He's going to look for more evidence, and he's going to work this out. But I, I just love those lines. She separates out the dead seeds from the living ones. And yeah. it's completely natural uh, from her perspective. I, I just thought that was a really powerful scene. I liked that a lot. I thought that was great. And that she doesn't even question it to herself. She doesn't even ask herself, why am I doing this? Why? You know, this is odd. Why am I acting this way? It's just completely normal to her, which I found very interesting. As did I, and I want to point out one other thing too. It's um, she asks Remus about the Wolfsbane potion, and he reserves the right not to answer any questions. But she knows what he will do. She knows if she is calm and she doesn't say anything, he will answer her questions, and he does. And he gives her a lot of the insight that we, as the reader, uh, received in the previous chapter. But it's interesting because if you think about it, Ginny admits at the start of this chapter she does not know Remus very well. And she, you know, is trying to, you know, feel him out and, you know, and develop a rapport with him. Yet she knows instantly how she can get him to answer her questions. Why? And then now take that piece of information and look back at the earlier chapters. She knows how to handle Harry. And it's in much the same way. Don't push him or he will run away. And that's what she does with Remus. She asks the question and she backs up and she lets the person open up to her. Now, is this Ginny's personality? Is she a very patient person? Or is she someone who just knows that this will work with these two men? And I ask you, if she's a patient person, 
she would not be going to pieces over the fact that she cannot make the holes for the pumpkin seeds. <laughs> so it's interesting because you, right. you can obviously tell this is a person who's frustrated easily, who doesn't have a lot of patience, but with two men in her life who... She reads them very well. She reads them extremely well. And the same with Ron in uh, Chapter 6 when you know yeah. Ron is you know very troubled about Draco Malfoy. She handles people very well and it's just very interesting. It's dropped in there and you know it will get picked up later. But I just love how that uh, was dropped in. But even more on that, um, when she refers to um, Severus Snape, it's just interesting the way that she uh, that, sh- that she describes um, you know her the connection between Snape and Percy. No bodies were found. She still hopes they're still alive. Right. Well, that's just I think another. It hasn't hit her yet. Yeah. It, you know, she hasn't. <laughs> it's hard to understand. Um, it's hard to accept it because again, they didn't see the body. You know. Yeah. I think it's kind of like, you know, a lot of the men that go off to war, you know, they hear that this person died or that person died, and, and they're sad that it, they, it doesn't actually hit them because they never get to say goodbye, you know? Right. And that was just one of those little touches that was thrown in there because you never get to see the relationship between Remus and Snape. You never get to know why they became people who respected each other and who were reasonably good acquaintances, as we found out in the last episode. But it's just one of those little things dropped in that she knows that his death has hit Remus hard, and it was just it was just a, a very interesting moment to drop in there, and it's something which you know won't be acted on very much, but it's just one of those little layers of the onion that you get to peel back and you get to see a little bit more depth to the characters that so many fanfics will just gloss over because they want to get to the plot and the battles and you know the and the screaming and the and the sex and it's just it was just a really interesting you know little tidbit to throw in there, and I, I really enjoyed that. So we come out to the street by Lupin Lodge. Ron has his wand out aimed at Draco's heart. Harry is standing nearby. Hermione is standing nearby. And the minute Jenny sees it, she grabs Remus's arm. Which I think when I read that the first time, it did struck me as very odd that she would do that, especially since in the earlier part of the chapter, she goes on and on about how reserved Remus is, how, you know, he's not extremely approachable. And then the first thing that she does when she gets there, is grab on to Remus. Yeah, and it's one of those things, too, where maybe you could just imagine that it was shock and it was something where she thought something was going to happen right away and she was just you know reaching out for her old professor, someone to go in there and fix the problem. But it was just such a powerful scene. There's a line I actually have written down here. Ginny had not seen Hermione look this desperate, not even in the last moments before Voldemort's defeat. She had not seen Ron trembling as if on the verge of an actual killing, and she had not laid eyes on Draco since the last day of the war. And we know from what's come before that she does not blame him for the acts of his father, and we know that she pities him for the worthless existence that he now has left. You know, his father is dead, he is alone, and he, in one of the more striking scenes of this chapter, we know that when Ginny was about to be killed by Lucius, uh, Arthur actually jumped between Lucius and Ginny and reflected back the Avada Kedavra curse, striking and yes. killing Lucius with his she own curse. She was ready to die. She was ready to die, and it's, you can just picture this too, and I, I don't mean to make light of a powerful scene, but you can just picture the scene where like everybody is jumping in front of everybody. You take, it's like you just picture like this mound of people all ready to die for each other. Lucius is killed directly in front of Draco. Just oh. the way A and Z write this. I love this quote. 
this was the image that Jenny couldn't shake. The velocity of the memory was staggering. So much pain in mere seconds. Draco had fallen to the dirt, his knees against his father's side, his face slack with belief, his hands extended uselessly over his father's lifeless body. He had mounted soundlessly, unintelligibly. The grief in the air had been palpable to Jenny, the unbearable grief, and the sickening cry that had torn out of Draco seconds later seemed to linger in the air, even now. Oh, yeah, it, just it, fabulous writing. It's fabulous <laughs> writing, but th- here's the thing. This is a character that we as the readers hate. We know that Lucius tortured the Grangers. We know that Draco may have been in some way involved. We know that just from what we read from Joe Rowling, he is not a good guy. His father was trying to kill Harry, Ginny, Arthur, pretty much name your pick, and he's dead. And you know that this is someone who has mistreated Draco all of his life. And if you've read fanfics, you know that you know half the time Draco responds gleefully that his father died. You know, in 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 the more simplistic fix, but. You just have to step back and say, regardless of who he was or what he did, a father was just killed in front of his son. Well, and in, in, in this fic, it doesn't particularly say that Draco hate his father. As far as we know, Draco idolized his father. Oh, and that's absolutely true. I think the point I was making is it reminds me almost of the um, of the Percy Weasley discussion we had in the first episode. When you as the reader come into a fic and you find out that Percy Weasley is dead, you think, oh, okay, he's the expendable Weasley. They showed that, you know, the Weasleys took losses, but they didn't get rid of anyone I really like, like Molly or Arthur. And uh, Percy is plug-and-play. You can pull him out of the Weasleys, and the Weasleys still make it. Whereas if you pull out Molly, the Weasleys kind of crumble together and fall apart. I think Kim may have actually said that. You get that preconception in your head that, you know, it's it's the standard thing. It's what fanfic writers will do to, to show losses, but, you know, not to affect their ability to tell stories with great characters. So in their... You know, so now take it to this scene. Lucius is killed before Draco. And you expect many things. You expect... I think I expected Draco to be very reserved, very calm, to you know, accept the fact that this was his father, but... That really? I did. I really did. I just got the sense, and maybe this is just the fanfic clouding me, I got the sense that his relationship with his father was on some level very frosty, that he was his father, but it was almost a very mechanical relationship. And mm-hmm. I think I expected many things. I expected his father you know, to have been killed before him and for him to you know, have felt the loss, but to have not been as affected by it as you know any of the you know of the weasleys or the trio or or you know any of the characters that we love would be if someone close to them were killed and just to draco fall to his knees and howl at the death of his father was something i as a reader did not expect well no i'll say i mean i will agree with you that i i think that him showing his side his agony his pain is not something that it really you know made me step aside and go oh wait a minute you know and look at it from draco the son's point of view but i will say that this story was written after goblet of fire and up to goblet of fire lucius is like draco's god you know as far as what i thought you know he idolized him he wanted to be him um and i thought that in the event of Lucius's death, that Draco perhaps, I don't think that calm him accepting it would be a way that I would see he would take it. I mean, I thought at the very least he would, you know, yank out his wand and, you know, try to fight or make up for it, you know, on his father's behalf, like yeah. not exactly understanding the depth of what's just happened, still in shock. They slow it down. They make us go through all this chaos. You know, they slow yeah. down the moment even when Jenny's like you said there was war everywhere it's going crazy Jenny takes 
a moment. The world slows down for her for just that moment. She knows she's going to die. Arthur jumps in front of her. You know, the same thing here. It slows down, and everybody just kind of stares at Draco, and no one goes to him. They all just are looking at him because he's a feeling person, too, and so he's lost his family, his dad, and, and it's really heartbreaking. And yet he's on, he's a bad guy. He's on the wrong side. Nobody goes to him. And this is one of the things that's just so great about the writing and so great about the way that Arabella and Xenia position these characters. It would be so easy to have the good guys and the bad guys and to have the story of the week and have it be almost like an after school special. Um, <laughs> you know, just, you know, I mean, just very simplistic roles. It's such another thing to create such chaos in the aftermath of a war that nobody's right and nobody's wrong but everyone's right and everyone's wrong and it just shows that even if you hate someone they may not be the bad guy and Ren is gonna kill me when she gets this but she's trapped at her mother-in-law's house now so that's fine i get to say this Rena, call in if you have a problem we're live um you know and and you know just think of it this way you have a son watch his father die now, granted, the father was a bad man, the father was an evil man, and the father was killed trying to kill, you know, between one and three other people that we as the readers love. But let's take this away. Draco has always hated Harry Potter. Justified yeah. or not, Draco has always hated Harry. All Draco had was, you know, he had no real friends. He had his father. He had his father. He had, you know, what had been ingrained in him since his birth. Everything he had in that moment of his father's death was wiped away. At that exact moment, his bitter rival gained everything. And he gets it. He gets it. You know, that's what I don't... He understands that his father is gone in that second. I find it completely unjustified, but in that character's eyes, you know, they... Those people, the Weasleys, Harry, they took away everything that he had. And in his mind's eye, he is justified. And this is one thing that I, I really think a lot of people don't think enough about when they write fanfic and a lot of people like Arabelle and Zenia do. Characters don't walk around going, Mwahaha, I am evil. They are justified in their own minds. <laughs> you know, Voldemort is in his own mind, he's justified. If you sat down and had tea with Voldemort, he would explain to you his master plan to conquer the world. In his mind, <laughs> it makes sense. But, you know, so Draco, in his own mind, on some level, is justified in what he does. And, you know, is it possible to ever reach him and deal with him? Maybe. You know, if, if maybe in this fic, for example, you know, read on. But, you know, mm-hmm. on this level, you know, he Draco feels as though he's completely justified in hating Harry, hating the Weasleys, hating the, well, there's no order, but hating Dumbledore, hating, you know, anyone who is not a death either. And everything he has is taken away by, quote-unquote, those people. And now, as Draco is at his loneliest low point, Harry has everything he has ever wanted, and that just kills him even more. And I love the descriptions in these chapters of Draco being a coward. He is not going to go up to Harry. He's not going to go up to Ron. He will if he has a bodyguard, but he's not going to push it in a way that would make him vulnerable. He knows he has very few resources, but the ones he has, he knows he can just poke at these people and and knock them off their game and take away you know, what little enjoyment they have and what little satisfaction they have, you know, in their summer. And he's going to go for it because he's Draco and they killed my father. I don't think he's, you know, gone out of his way. I think that him running across them in the, you know, on the road was purely accidental. Do you think 
that it wasn't. I don't think he's seeking them out, but I think every little chance he has to knock over the anthill, you know, and, and to cause as much damage as he can, he will take, but he will not endanger himself. He will not push too hard, but he will poke them just a little because he's a coward. He doesn't think he's a coward. I think he is. He thinks he's justified. Well, it must be overwhelming for him to see them. It must just be hurt and anger all at the same time whenever he sees them. You never stop to wonder. Maybe he doesn't want to be there. (laughs) Maybe he doesn't want to have anything to do with these people. Maybe he's fine letting them go on with their lives, but as long as he's stuck next door to them, he's going to you know, get out there, and if he sees them, he's going to walk by them. He's not going to say anything. He's going to make them make the first move. And maybe he's just going to try and cause a little chaos because as much as he is avoiding direct conflict, these people killed his father. That's his mindset. And I just want to talk about the the, the confrontation. You have Ron with his wand pointed at Draco's heart, and you have Harry standing there ready to back up his buddy, and you have Ginny just shell-shocked almost by the moment because she's flashing back to how wounded Draco was at the moment of his father's death. And there's even a very uh, great line of dialogue. Ginny pities Draco at that point. She even feels like a traitor for feeling that way because this is the person who has done so much to harm the people that she loves and she pities Draco as her brother is aiming his wand at him and I love the characterization of Hermione at this point she almost sounds like a scared child begging you know a parent you know not to punish them she's just she's almost you can barely even hear her voice you know you could imagine if you were there and she's just saying please don't do it he's not worth it put your wand away because she is so terrified that Draco will bait Ron and Ron will be taken away from her forever right that Ron is going to do something right no, you're exactly right. I love the scene as it uh, continues. Harry uh, goes with uh, Ginny and with Remus uh, down to the village. And there's just a great line where Remus is just talking about uh, Harry's parents. And he absentmindedly uh, answers Ginny's question from earlier. Or I shouldn't say that. He indirectly answers Ginny's question from earlier about the fight he's having with Remus. And gives Harry some information about... Um, you know, his parents and, and everything that happened back in the Marauder days. And I just love this line of dialogue. You know, Sirius wasn't always the together person you guys know him as today. I just thought that was great. I just love that Remus, he, he, I always think of Remus almost like Bob Newhart. I just see him as this very, you know, stoic guy who just delivers the zingers, but you never expect it because it's Remus. But he's just such a, I just love Remus, this character so much in this that I almost expect to find this exact same character in the books. And sometimes he's not there, but. That's a topic for another yeah. day. But let's get back to Lupin Lodge. You have Ron, who is so furious. I just love this thing. He's bursting through the house. He can't be contained by the house. He's knocking things over. He charges through the backyard. He runs into the woods. That I didn't even think we knew were there, but he keeps running so far. He hits woods. Yeah, there's woods there. There's apparently woods there. And I, I can't even remember. I think he throws like you know something you know up over the woods. He's furious in her mind. He's chasing after him, and and he and she wants to talk, and he's. You know, unleashed, and he's screaming, and she's screaming, and this is, you know, the scene of them, you know, in book in chapter two down by the lake. This is that was them, you know, beating around the bushes. This is Ron, full blown furious, and you find out that Draco called her a mudblood, and you had found out that he called Arthur a murderer, and he is unhinged, and he is ready to 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 rip a tree hit down. Something. He's right. He's ready to hit something so hard, and. I love the line. Hermione is actually t- intimidated. Hermione is actually scared. And I was wondering, reading that the first time, is this going to go into, you know, like issues of, you know, domestic violence? You know, you know, he'd never do anything to Hermione, but there's just, you know, that sense that maybe Ron's 
dealing with the war, you know, in in a very physical sense. And, you know, you're wondering where that's going to go. And he says that he would, he was ready to kill and that just frightens her so much and terrifies her so much, both that he he would be taken away from her and number two, you know, more importantly, that that he would be a murderer. And that's just, is so uh, nauseating to her. And then he says, I would kill, you know, to defend you. I would do anything for you. And there's just a great line of dialogue where Hermione flushes, and no matter how, you know, strongly she may feel about him, and it's you know, I, I would kill for you, and you could tell she's one minute she's intimidated and she's backing away, and the next minute she's like, oh, really? <laughs> and well, the intimidation, I have to point out. All right. You know, when you're when you're around with anyone who is that furious, you step back. I mean, it's a natural feeling, and I think especially for a woman, and not necessarily that she would think that he did any harm, but she's seen him angry. But how often has she seen him this angry? Like she's seen another side to him, and I think it makes her step back. I don't think that she's intimidated necessarily of him, you know, I have to point that out. <laughs> well, let me just clarify my remarks. I don't think... Well, well, there's there's Hermione in the scene, and then there's me as the reader watching Hermione in the scene. I didn't think that Ron was in the hither mm-hmm. or anything, and I didn't think that she thought yeah, that maybe obviously. he was in the hither. But I thought that maybe this was, you know, foreshadowing of them taking his character in that direction. Maybe he has some, you know, serious issues he needs to deal with over the course of this fic, and maybe that was one of the precursors to it. Um I think at the sense that it was written in there as, you know, Hermione, you know, instinctively stepped back because Ron was loud. I got the impression from the dialogue that she was consciously concerned for her welfare, that she was that intimidated because, like you said, he had never become this unleashed before. And then hmm. he clarifies, I am not just talking about murdering him. I will do anything to protect you. It's all about Hermione. This isn't Ron having a bad day. She is the focus of this. And it's, it's such an interesting, you know, juxtaposition because you have Hermione afraid that Ron will be taken away from her, but then you have Ron, whose primary instinct, which he has pledged in the last chapter, to, you know, completely throw into the waste paper bin and the, you know, that lasted for about 20 minutes. He's not going to, you know, attack Draco Malfoy. He's not going to take any action against Draco because Hermione doesn't want that. But how do you turn off your protective instinct for someone you love if they ask you to? Sometimes you just can't do it. And and it's just these characters. That must be a guy thing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> how, and, yeah, well, for anyone, how do you do that? How do you, if someone you love says, I'm in danger, but I don't want you to worry about it, and I'm telling you to do it, so don't worry about me. What? I mean, you can't do that. And on some level, you know, it's Hermione is asking it, and I think she knows that she can't have it. And he's offering it, but he knows he can't do it. And the, these two characters are just trying to work through this, you know, cyclical loop they're stuck in. And it's just, you can just tell Ron wants to punch his, you know, fist through a tree to you know, relieve this tension somehow. And it's, it was just such a well-written moment. And I love that, you know, during, during this moment, Hermione speaks of uh, wanting to become the thinker. Ron, when finding out that Hermione has not been accepted is like openly gleeful and that is such a guy thing that is this scene is such a roller coaster yeah it's, it's such a ron and hermione i mean he's furious he's so angry and then he starts thinking about her that he would die for her she feels romantic feelings it really gets i mean it goes from high climatic point all the way to low or calm down 
and then she's like, oh, by the way, I'm going to be a thinker. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, you, you can imagine, like, you know, intercutting, like, a scene of them eating macaroni and cheese or something, you know, like, between takes. It was just, there was just so much going on there. And you can just tell too she's finally calmed down okay he's ready to kill for me that's probably you know i don't want him to do it but you know it's just it's it's a demonstration of our love and this you know wonderful bond that we have and then she says here's my dream i want to become a thinker and he's yeah. like oh great you didn't get in that's wonderful and obviously it wasn't as simple <laughs> as that but now she's just furious with him again and she and she, so and she stomps off and he's you know the what what did i do and you know he's following behind her and <laughs> You know, it's so easy to just consider Ron to be, you know, the goofy, or, you know, the character, like, you know, Kim said last week, the goofy sidekick of Harry. He knows how to push Hermione's buttons. He knows how to reel her back in. He starts joking around about Harry's birthday party. Within a few moments, Hermione realizes, I cannot be mad at him. And that kills her, because she wants to be so mad, because he's promising things, and he's going back on his promises, and he's happy that her dreams aren't coming true and she wants to be so furious with him but she can't because unfortunately he's Ron. She, well she wants him to be so supportive. She wants him to just understand where she's coming from. That's it. And and it angers her that he doesn't get it and it makes her go, why can't he get it? Why can't he understand this for me? That's what she's so furious at and then he completely dismisses the point and moves on. He completely doesn't get it and, and I don't works. know if it was him Trying, well, I suppose sometimes. I don't think that he necessarily was trying to appease the argument. I think he was trying to, he honestly thought it was over. You know, I think he just didn't, he didn't ask very far into himself how he really felt about that. He just purposely, I think, overlooked it or took it for face value, didn't want to go into detail. And that's what angered her. But I think that when he starts talking about other stuff, you know, I don't think necessarily he's trying to get out of that conversation. I just think he thinks it's over. Well, that's an interesting Maybe point. not. Maybe not. I don't know. I get the sense that he knows exactly what he's doing because I'm thinking back to, um, I believe it was the coffee scene when you have it from, I believe, Ron's perspective. And he knows just what buttons to push on her and he knows how to get her going and he loves it. I think that he knows that he got her angry. He needs to reel her back in. So I'm going to disagree with you on that one. I think that he knew exactly okay. what he was doing. And I think it was interesting because I think <laughs> Hermione knew exactly what she was doing. She knew I could live to fight another day. I have the whole summer to talk him into this. And I, I thought that was just a really you know great moment um, to end these two characters off at. I just love the scene right before when um, you know you have Ginny, Remus, and Harry standing outside and they're like, well, you think we should go in? Nope. Everyone to the village, you know, the, someone's going to punch a tree, you know, let's just get away from them. And they just give these two characters space. And could you picture, you know, during the screaming match, you know, Remus walking up, you know, how's everybody doing? It just wouldn't have worked well. So I just thought that would have been, maybe that could be an outtake or something. But I just thought that these characters were just so well conceived in the scene and they reacted um, mm -hmm. very realistically based on what we know of them. And I just thought it was a very, it was just such a good chapter. We learn that things are happening. We don't know what the things are yet, but we just get some great character moments and we really get the sense that something's up with the Jenny and we're going to find out more about that later. Yes. I think it definitely foreshadows, especially when she, you know, she is so ill looking that even Harry is like, hey, well, Jenny, are you all right? And she's like, I'm fine. <laughs> and then she's so excited that Harry had finally given in to her. You know, he's going to walk with her and Remus yeah. for the first time. Harry gave in to her. That was a great moment too, and you get to—you definitely get to see these characters coming together, which means, of course, the thick is almost over, and everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. La di da. Yeah. Next chapter: the Canolia. 
this is just, I think, a great chapter. I think you actually had a comment on the forums about it, that at every point when you think it reached its high point, they just push it a little bit further and a little bit oh. further. You were crying it's reading so this chapter, stunning. weren't you, Jen? Of course. Who can read this and not cry their eyes out? Uh, well, I didn't cry yeah. today, but I, but I was <laughs> – it was a reread. Okay. Well, let's put it away for a second because we have to cover some business first. Uh, the chapter okay. um, opens with Harry going to his Quidditch tryouts for the Shudley Cannons. I love the scene in the beginning. Ginny wakes up to see him off. and Oh, that's such, that's such Ginny. That's so great that she does that. And all Harry you know, can do is notice her feet. Her bare feet. Her bare yep. feet going back up the stairs. I, uh, and I, I love that he's just like... Hmm, bare feet. Okay. And you can just tell that he, he's really loosening up. He's not the Harry that, you know, arrived at, you know, Lupin Lodge and, you know, was only concerned about her schooling. He's really starting to realize that something's going on here. And, yeah. you know, you, you can tell that was just a little moment for him. I, I think she's what in her nightgown and she closes it with one hand or something. And he's like, what was I saying? What was I saying? It's just, I just love the fact that those characters had that little moment there at the beginning. And he, well, doesn't he find her the whole picture of her in the, where she's holding her robe? I think he actually uses the word endearing for the first time. He looks at her, and he he thinks she's endearing, and it's the first time that he's actually. I think he's always accepted the fact that she loves him, but he doesn't he doesn't comprehend it, and he knows he can't reciprocate it. But he, I think he's always just accepted it, you know. Sirius loves me. Okay. Yeah, and it's such an interesting fic for that to happen, too, because like we've been talking about uh, in the first chapter, we get concrete proof that these characters love Harry. He knows it. It's on the table. He knows that Jenny loves him, and he doesn't have to doubt it. He can doubt why. He can doubt is he worthy, but he can't doubt it. He knows it, and now he knows that he has feelings, too. The war is over. If you're going to act on them, this is it. And he notices that she's in bare feet. And I love that it's from his perspective. And he knows that she's in bare feet. I just thought that was a kind of interesting moment. So we jump to the Chudley Cannons uh, tryouts with Oliver Wood. He has My drank- favorite character. Oliver has had 4,000 cups of coffee since we've last met him. <laughs> I love Oliver. Who doesn't love Oliver? I think half the people trying out for the uh, Chudley Cannons this year uh, would probably dispute that you know, with you, just such a great scene, and you can you, you almost picture him as a drill sergeant. I was waiting for one of the characters to be like, "Sir, yes, sir," and and you love that Harry goes into the scene as you know Oliver's old teammate. He's going to the Chudley Cannons, who haven't won in 106 years. He's Harry Potter. He defeated Voldemort. And you can tell he walked into this with a preconception that he's going to make this team in a walk, and he finds out. Um, not to even his chagrin, he finds out to his enjoyment that he's going to have to work for it. He has to play Quidditch, he has to play it well, and he needs to do a really good job, and the standards are extraordinarily high, and I think he prefers that. Harry doesn't like, you know, getting things, you know, based on his name or on his scar. He likes having a work for it, and I think that's just yeah. a very... And to earn it. He, to earn it, and he likes that, and you can tell that he's used to Oliver. He can take it. He's the first one up in the air, and he's just having... <laughs> a great he's time. He's so with used it. to Oliver. No one else is used to to it. They all kind of second guess him, and Harry's just like, "Nope, he's serious." The motto for the Chudley Cannons is "Let's all cross our fingers and hope for the best." And we actually heard that in an earlier <laughs> chapter. And I couldn't figure out why Ginny was joking about that. I was, I was, I was reading it. And I was feeling like a, like a dope, like I wasn't getting the joke. And then we get to the Chudley Cannons. I'm like, "Oh, it's the motto of the team." I couldn't remember that. Right. But I love that. No, you're not supposed to get it. 
I no, I could have sworn I could have sworn it was back in chapter six. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll check into that. But I love that Oliver changes it from "Let's cross our fingers and hope for the best" to "We shall conquer." Yes. And th- this is the same Oliver that in Harry's second year said, "Catch the snitch or die trying." I just, I just love Oliver. He's so intense and. These people love Quidditch, they love playing the game, and they're all like, what? And you just love the effect it has on Harry. Harry is becoming more and more like himself again. He is having a good time. He is enjoying himself. He is free in the air. He hasn't probably been able to play Quidditch for so long. He hasn't been on a broom, you know, in all likelihood, you know, not in a war-type sense, you know, driving off to mentors or, you know, flying into battle and you can tell it's just such an exhilaration for him and you slowly over the course of the last chapter this chapter next chapter just see the 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 stress just peeled away from harry and you just see the old harry kind of coming out again yes and at least oliver oliver treats harry like the normal person he treats him just like everybody else and And he's like the only person who does that oh thank you for saying that because i was i almost forgot it and he treats harry like a normal person he treats Harry like anyone else on the team. He doesn't even probably recognize him until the end, which, you know, maybe he's Oliver and he's so focused on Quidditch, maybe he didn't, or maybe he made a conscious effort not to point out that Harry was Harry Potter. You don't know. You have Harry out there. He's being treated like a normal person. He's doing something he loves, and he is competing against a very talented woman who we come to know as Maureen Knight, and Maureen recognizes Harry, and she doesn't gawk at him. She doesn't treat him like the object that so many other people in the wizarding world do that makes him feel so uncomfortable. And you see him, he's trying to put his hair down over a scar. He's just been, you know, outed by Oliver Wood as Harry Potter. And yeah, she's not in awe of him. She's not in awe of him, and she just walks up to him and she thanks him. Like, you held the door for someone and they thank you. He saved the world, and she doesn't want his interview. She doesn't want to, you know go on a date with him. She doesn't want to send him fan mail. She just met him. He did a great thing. She just wants to say thanks. Someone who knows him on some level now, they're they're trying out for the same team. They've been playing around with each other for a little while, and she just thanks him. And it's just so simply. And he tries to think of how to characterize that, and it was nice. And I just think that's such a great way to characterize that, because it just reminds me of... Um, I believe it was in the prologue when Harry has the letter from Sirius. It was a good letter. That's all you get. It was a good letter. And someone thanks Harry for this extraordinary thing he did. It was nice. It was nice. It It, was different. It was different. No one's ever done that for me before. Usually they want to write terrible stories about me. It was nice. I just thought that was a great scene. Well, he thinks about it. He waits to be annoyed. He does. And... and it's kind of like the scene with Eloise. You know, two reporters show up and he freezes them and it turns out they're great people and they write a great piece on them. This is, you can tell Harry's, you know, in these first few chapters of the story, is just an awe of the world because he must be walking around saying, what happened to everybody else? Because you're supposed to hate me and you're supposed to, you know, gawk at me and point at me. And he's just being treated like a great guy and he's just having some great experiences. And you can tell it's kind of bringing him out of his shell and you get the sense that maybe you get the sense that he thinks maybe everything's going to be all right. I want to acknowledge Oliver acknowledging Harry for the first time. He's got all these commands for everyone else. Like, when you come back, next time do this. You know, next time don't. He tells one guy, 
don't even bother coming back if you're going to stop two feet before everyone else does, you know? And then he gets to Harry, and he just squints his eyes, and he's like, back for more, are you? Yeah, it's, a, it's such them. a great it's such a great moment. You like, there's the guy right before him who's been a seeker his entire life, and he just looks at them. You're going to be a beater now, and the guy's like, "What?" And <laughs> you can tell this is this is Oliver Wood. You know, by the time you realize he just completely screwed your life, he's now onto the third person to the left, and he just looks at Harry, just shakes his hand, pumps his hand. You know, you're back for more. Is though he was just there Both. ten minutes ago. Both of them are trying not to smile. Yeah. Very manly moment. Very manly moment, and it, it's the just a gr- It's just such a great moment too. Whereas Harry's trying to reconnect with the life that he never got to have, he's trying to reconnect with you know pre-war times. And what 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 more exemplifies pre-war times than getting up at the crack ass of dawn in the morning and you know working out with Oliver Wood? And okay, uh, now we can talk. <laughs> okay, now Julie from the forum, uh, if she's listening to this, is all excited right now because we're about to talk about Neville. Julie, uh, if Hi, you, Julie. How you doing? If you have the option to uh, go to our forum, uh, check out uh, under our members. If you find Julie on there somewhere, check out her fix. She's uh, very into Neville. So Harry apparates back to Lupin Lodge and apparently forgot when you apparate, don't land on anybody. It completely takes out Julie. <laughs> I forgot about that moment. I love it. And that he moment. takes out Ginny, and you can tell, and he's like, I'm, 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 I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Like, he just, you know, bumped this perfect stranger off the street, and this isn't the person, you know, who he's, you know, madly in love with. And I just love that she, like, kind of picks herself up and says, I'm reporting you to the DAL. And <laughs> you, it's just this great moment. And you have to picture Neville. He's probably at Hogwarts, you know, talking to her by flu, and he's standing there, and all of a sudden she just gets completely taken out by Harry Potter apparating into the room. It must have been the funniest moment. And uh, I love the scene where Harry starts talking to Neville, who is now Professor Longbottom of the Herbology Department of the Hogwarts School of yeah. Witchcraft and Wizardry. And professor in Learning. He's Professor in Learning. Professor Sprout's retiring to, I think, what is she doing? She's selling her, her, her Professor Sprout is selling her plants wholesale or something. It's like something. Don't know Neville very much. You haven't seen him before in the thick. And he just seems so confident, so sure of himself. He just seems like so far removed from the meek little kid who won the House Cup for Gryffindor in the first year. And it's such a great characterization to advance the character. And we don't see a lot of him yet, but he isn't nervous. He isn't jumpy. He's very sure of himself. So you know that Neville has gone through some trying times. And uh, I'm very curious, because I can't recall, I'm very curious to see where the character of Neville ends up. You have, uh, it's kind of a cliched moment, but it's it, it's necessary and you know, as people who are following along to see what happens with Harry and Ginny, it's kind of a fun moment too. You have uh, Ginny with the parchment in her pocket. You have Neville acting a little strangely and breaking the connection. And Harry is so jealous of Neville Longbottom. And you have to he's picture so jealous. he's jealous of Neville Longbottom. And it's just, you know, something must have happened with Neville over the years for Neville to be, you know, worthy. The man just saved the world. He's an up and coming Quidditch star. He's Harry Potter. You know, he, everyone in the world, you know, has an opinion on him. And Neville Longbottom is is the person that makes well, they, Harry jealous. I just, I thought that was great. They did go to the Yule Ball together. After they all. did go to the Yule Ball together. And if you trust the movies, I hear Neville is quite the dancer. If you trust the books, Neville apparently knocked Ginny down a fly of stairs. So it depends uh, how you define your canon. But that was just a great little throwaway scene. Yeah. Okay. Well, then the next day, Harry has, you know, gone to practice. He's sweated. He's gotten gross. He's come home. 
he's jumped in the shower. He's left his pants and clothes in his room. A frequent problem. <laughs> I, t- I, too, shower and have no earthly idea how I'm going to clothe myself afterwards. <laughs> so, he goes, do I want to sew in my clothes, or do I just want to dash out there and go get them? So, of course, I would probably do the dashing thing, too. Okay. But he goes, he runs, and... <laughs> When he does, he runs into Jenny, staring, you know, at the top of the stairs, wide-eyed. She's just staring. And he's so embarrassed. He's just like, er, hi. <laughs> and you have to love it, too, because Arabella and Xenia seem to have no problem putting every male character in a towel at some point during this fic. We had Charlie last week. We love the towel. There's, I wonder if it's the same towel, but, you know, it's just... Everyone seems to be stuck in a towel at one point or another. And you can tell Ginny, I think you said this in the forums, she has sold her brothers. She's probably seen them all running around the house in a towel at one point. She's seen yeah. everything. There's a, Harry is in a towel. But not and, Harry. But not Harry. And and that just kind of changes everything around. That just changes the dynamic. It's just such a funny scene because you know, I, I was even screaming this too. It's sometimes I scream when I read, you know, the characters, you know, because there's like, you know, the bad guy around the corner. Don't go there. I'm just screaming, don't run out in the hallway. You know, Ginny will be there. <laughs> and of course, Jenny's outside in the oh, hallway. Oh, here I'm screaming, go down the hallway, maybe she'll be And we're, we're, each on, we're each on his opposing shoulders screaming, like, do it, don't do it, do it, don't do it. So, of course, Jenny's out there and she tells him, you know, dinner's ready, time to come down. So, of course, he, he makes a mental reminder to always leave pants in the bathroom. And he goes downstairs and it's apparently his 18th birthday and he completely forgot because not being at the Dursleys, he no longer has a reason to keep track of the days, and it was his birthday, and it slipped his mind. And yeah, they say, like, he doesn't have a calendar. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a guy thing. I guess so. Like, what? Okay. It's a guy Anyway. Thing. So, the Weasleys are there. Yeah, it, it's a great scene. The Weasleys are there, and, you know, Sirius is there. Everybody's there. And... It's one of these things where every time, every moment, you think you've hit the point of the chapter where you're at the height, and this is the part you're going to remember this chapter by, and it just keeps getting better, and it keeps getting better. And you have the acknowledgement that Fred has married Angelina, and he has to tell Molly. And you just picture the scene where George is just glaring at them, and they're looking at each other, and they're talking, and Molly's absentmindedly missing the whole thing. And all of a sudden, you can tell that, you know, Fred is mad as hell, and he's not going to take it anymore. And he tells his mother that they got married, and, and she screams, what? And it's this entire dramatic scene, and Arthur is loving every minute of it. <laughs> well, and Fred turns into a man in this chapter, to me. How so? He... he- well, they even say for the first time, Fred actually just looks at his mother calmly and very grown-uply and says, you know, I love her. It was the right time. Instead of being joking or stupid or, you know, causing some kind of chaos. Well, mean, meanwhile, we have George on the other side of the table saying they got married because of a bet, which sets Molly into a tailspin, so... <laughs> which well, is I, interesting. Me too. You've been around fanfic for a lot longer than I have. Usually fanfic has George as the serious one and Fred as the practical jokester, you know, more so than, than George. But this fic actually reverses it. Arabella and Zenia have Fred be the mature one and they have George being yeah. the jokester, which was interesting. I mean, I don't think there's any way you could really... I don't no, think it's I a agree. Huge point, well, I, and I have to point out that I think it's very funny that although Fred and Angelina are now married, 
dark is still a part of them. <laughs> you can picture them going home and going to bed, and like they roll over and kiss each other. Then they they roll over and you know George spoons with them. You just picture the scene. <laughs> I know, but you know, he goes home with them. He, he obviously lives with them. <laughs> Angelina's fine with it. She, when you marry Fred, you get George. It's completely normal. She married into both of them, and I think she knew it. You can tell every night, you know, when they're in bed, she leans over and looks at Fred and says, "We need to get George a woman." <laughs> you can just picture that scene happening. But you hear George down the hall. Shut up. Oh, please! In the next bed over, they get the Lucy and Ricky beds, but um. And then you have Arthur loving every minute of it. And yes, he's so bemused by them. Arthur is my favorite character in this chapter because he doesn't he's really great. say much, but every time he says something, you just you just love the man so much. And uh, present time starts, and uh, the twins give Harry their model uh, Quidditch set. They give him you know the first prototype off the assembly line. You can pick your players. It's amazing. Can, it's amazing, and they're all just staring at it, and Harry passes it to Ron, and I can't even remember if you see Ron in this chapter. You can tell he's probably at the table still playing with the, uh, with the Quidditch set. And, Probably. And, I uh, think that's what I, that, that really shocked me about this scene is I kept going, wow, that was such a cool gift. And then you read on and you're just like, wow, that's an even cooler gift. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting better and better. And you're oh, you can like, tell. Wow, it, and, I wish and, it was my birthday. So you have, you know, Remus gives him the alarm clock, you know, that will impersonate Oliver Wood to get him out of, get his fat arse out of bed. You know, in the morning you have Hermione, who is definitely our Hermione, who gives him common Quidditch injuries and charms to prevent them. She gives him a book. I think she's always given him a book. Typical Hermione. And her run has not yet ended. Uh, Ron gives him Goldie's liquid curse because he's never had the problem with that before. And Ginny gives him the photo album. Ah, the photo album. The photo album. I'm here. Love Ginny. And I have the list right here. You have Dean drew the cover of it. Seamus wrote an inscription. You have Parvati wrote about that wonderful date they had called the Yule Ball. And I believe she thanks him because he was such an ass to her during the date. She went off and met some other guy who apparently she had a thing with. Um, Neville, you find out, was calling Jimmy to give him all of the Gryffindor passwords over the years. And, you know, Harry. I'm shocked that he could find the list. Well, I, I, mean, I have to point out. No, I think what actually he did was I think this doesn't say he had to actually go to Hogwarts. Well, he was probably at Hogwarts anyway, but he had to go oh, and get yeah. them, which is why Neville did it because he's now a professor at Hogwarts. But he had to go and get them from the, from the fat lady, and that would be a great outtake. I hope someone writes about that scene. And um, Julie, <laughs> exactly, Julie. And um, <laughs> we have a great you know team on our forums who can take care of these things for us. And I love that. Remus and Sirius make him a Marauder's Map for the Lupin Lodge so he can always tell when the toilet is free. <laughs> that is hysterical. But That is absolutely hysterical. While that is a great gift, back to the photo album. And I'm into this point in the story. She has been extremely reserved from Harry. She has backed off. She has given him as much space as he has needed. And now she's letting him know that she is there. I love it. It's perfect. And both of them know what that means. There's no denying that Harry knows how Ginny feels. Ginny may not know what Harry thinks, and she's getting it in dribs and drabs, but just the moment when they both realize that, you think, okay, that's the high point of the chapter. You know, we're done from here. And then, nope, nope, not happening. And then you get uh, the Canolia, which is a gift that Lily and James left for Harry through Sirius. 
and he wasn't able to give it to him when he turned 17, so he has it this year. And I just love the moment where they take the cannoli out and they explain to Harry it's like a muggle you know, film and all of the, all of the Weasley men, film, all of the Weasley men, including Arthur are like, cool. I've always wanted one. And there, you can tell they want to go and kick the tires on the thing. And I I was just cracking up at that. He's the minister of magic. The world's ending, but you know, Oh, look at that really cool thing over there. And he wants to go play with it. Well, and I love that Harry is so appreciative of it. He's, it means so much. Even when he doesn't know it's a Penelia, when he thinks it's just a picture, he's so touched by it. And he, he wants has yeah, so little of his parents. You know, he's looking for so little, and he gets so much, and it completely overwhelms him. Yes. And you know, they, t- they they turn the Pinoli on, and you essentially get to look at you know the Marauders' years, the home movies. And I will still remember the first time I read this scene. Um, you see Lily and James, young Lily and James, and they're standing there, and Remus is filming it. This is years ago. This is back in you know the early 1980s, and they make a reference to the fact that Lily's pregnant, and Remus falls over. Yes, and he goes, really? You're pregnant? <laughs> he had no idea that that this was going to happen. I just thought that was such a cool moment. It's like, did they not know he was going to do that? Did they not think, you know, maybe he would realize that they were pregnant? But um, I, I thought that was a great way to start it off. And then you get Peter Pettigrew in the flashback. And just, there's even a reference, like we were joking, you know, wanting to warn Harry not to go into the hallway because Ginny would be there. You have Harry watching his parents around the man that will betray them and it's so real that he almost wants to reach out and touch them he almost wants to reach out and warn them about Pettigrew's betrayal right and and he, and he does he does reach out you know he has to go oh oh and he pulls himself back and he's so overwhelmed by the moment that he just wants everyone to go away he wants to turn it off he he, he doesn't know if he can take this and Jenny puts her hand on his and all of a sudden you can leave the cannoli on all night. I can deal with this. Ginny just so reinforces him at that moment. I just think it's such a great scene. It is. But I want to point out, though, that this is the first time that Arabella and Zinya show us Remus and Sirius being together in front of other people. I mean, I, I think that if they had left out them showing how they are, how they are watching the cannoli it would not have been so profound. I mean, she keeps going from the scene in the cannoli, and then it it goes to Harry looking at Remus and Sirius. And instead of them, you know, crying and being solemn, they're shaking with laughter, they're whispering, they're poking each other. Oh, and it's it's such a great scene watching the flashbacks, because on one hand, you have Lily by herself just breaking down, and she's alone, and she's telling her grown son who isn't born yet, how scared she is that she doesn't know if her husband is going to come back when he leaves and just how she desperately wishes that whatever they do there together they will create a world that Harry will never have to go through what they're going through and it's such a sad moment because you know they go through so much and they die you know shortly after you know the recording and you know that even what Harry goes through is even so much worse because you know how much he loses and what it costs him and you know how lonely he is in the beginning and then you you contrast that with the next scene, which is you know Sirius Remus 
and James James has to settle up the bet with Remus and Sirius because apparently <laughs> when they were very loud at that party once, they were conceiving Harry. And you just do the math and you're like, oh yeah, he was conceived on Halloween. And it was just such a great moment where James is trying to argue it and finally he just pulls the coins out and says, here, it throws them at them. And it was just such a great scene. And then Ron even jumps in there with, can we celebrate Conception Day You know, with nearly headless Nick? For It was just, and you, you want to cry and you want to laugh and then you just have this scene and you can just see Remus and Sirius shaking so much it's such a profound scene and then contrast that with the next scene which is they're you know joking about harry you know flying before he's walking and you see serious they give him a baby broom they give him a baby broom and you see they're using when guardian love yoza on him and he's bouncing all around and and, and lily's he, like my son will not fly before he walks because the wizarding version of dr spock doesn't agree with it and, mm-hmm. and and then you just see a perfectly normal day it's a summer day they're they're out by the water and you just see how emotionally drained Sirius and remus get because they know that's the last recording because james and lily die shortly thereafter how did you like that final scene i thought it was so necessary because there's so much that you can get from that and one of the themes you pull from their story is that terrible things happen but because terrible things happen you can't forget the happy moments you know during the war awful things happen but there were moments of of happiness and you can't let those be sucked up you know for the fact that James and Lily were betrayed by Peter Pettigrew, for the fact that Sirius lost 13 years of his life due to that betrayal, for the fact that, you know, Harry has lost so many people, the Weasleys have lost a son and a brother, and throughout all of that, you know, there were still happy moments and we have to celebrate them, but I really like that they ended with that scene. I really like that they yeah. ended with, you know, such happiness, you know, the joking about the conception and, and the baby broom and the Wingardium Leviosa, and they end on a happy moment but it's the last happy moment. I thought that was just such a bittersweet way to end that. And you can just feel how Harry must be feeling watching this. He's there with the person who he loves, who he doesn't know how to react to, who's holding his hand and helping him through it. And he knows what happens and how everything turns out. But just going back and seeing it for himself and being able to now hear his father joke, he hears his father's voice and it's not a moment of fear knowing that his family is about to be killed it's a happy moment where they're joking and he gets to know how terrified his mother was but also how stern she was and how she reacted to her friends it's just such a powerful scene and then when you think it's over you have harry receive the gift from the dursleys he receives um a package from them which you have to love just the descriptions of it. It's from Petunia Dursley. It's wrapped so that she didn't use any more wrapping paper than she had to. And at first you think it's because she's just so prim and proper, but you know she she tests Harry enough that she doesn't want to waste an ounce more than she has to, and they put just enough stamps on it to, you know, get it to the Wizarding World. I love that. You're mailing it to the Wizarding World. You better put a few extra stamps on it, because that'll help it get there. Yeah, I know. And and they ma- <laughs> and we, we found this. We, we don't want it. If you don't want it, don't send it back. And, you know, no happy birthday. That's all you get. And it's right. it's the baby blanket that Harry came in. And one thing that's so interesting in this chapter is that you get more information about the leather that Sirius gave Harry um, back in the prologue. But you also, you get the leather that Arabella and Xenia added to the backstory that he wrote for Harry when he was a baby that Harry never got. And you... Yeah. 
and it, you, there's even a point where Harry looks at it and says, "Well, this would have cleared up a lot." But yeah, you know, <laughs> this would have been this would have been helpful. And it, it's just such a profound moment because you can see the series of then and the series of now. Um, and the first letter that he wrote 17 years ago: "Be safe, Harry. I'll come for you as soon as I can. It's probably better that Hagrid wouldn't let me bring you with me, but I would have Harry. Fine. No, I Fine. would have. Someday you will understand your Godfather, Sirius Black, and then." Know everything that happened. Know that Sirius went to jail for a crime he didn't commit. Know that Harry lost 11 years of his life with people who despised him. And just know everything that's happened in the war and everything that Harry's had to face. And then you have the second leather. This is the leather that was a good leather back in the prologue. That's all you know about it. It was a good leather. You know that I have had my doubts as to whether I would ever be free to do my godfatherly duties by you. But Harry, now that I am, it's going to be the way it should have been all along. I promise you that. It's... Sirius just making a pledge to Harry, and you can tell that so much time has passed, but Sirius the man still wants the same thing for his godson, and he wants to do right by James and Lily. And it's just such a contrast to see the letter from then and the letter from now, and just know that the intent hasn't changed. I found it very shocking that Petunia would even mail him that let you know, mail him the blanket at all, much less on his birthday. Like, she got, she remembered two things there. Well, it's interesting Which I find too. Amazing. Well, they, I always think that too, and I always think there's a part of the plot that we don't know yet because Petunia and, and Vernon always remember Harry's birthday, and even more so than that, they they keep him when they could have dumped him in an orphanage. I think there was something with Dumbledore. There was some promise. There was some exchange. Whereas they need to do the basics. They need to at least feed him. They need to at least keep him alive. They need to at least remember his birthday. And I just sensed it was that. Plus, I also sensed that they couldn't get rid of the thing. If they tried to throw the blanket out, it would just come back the next day, and the only way they could get rid of it was to return it to Harry. I just, I got the sense, you know, maybe someone will write an outtake someday. I got the sense there was more to that scene than just that. I hope so. I certainly hope, I hope so, too. And then how, then how does the scene end? The scene ends with Draco Malfoy watching the entire exchange. He sees Harry at his emotional yes. peak, whereas Draco is at his emotional valley. He is at the lowest point he can be at. And it's so interesting, too, because you have Harry make a realization that usually in other fix people have to make for him and deliver to him because usually he's too stunted to receive it or he's too stunted to realize it. You have... Harry realized that although he went through hell for 11 years, although he has lost so much, he did what was hard, he made it, and he's a better person for it. Whereas you had Draco be given everything early, he squandered it, he misused it, he lost everything, and now he's left with nothing. At least Harry isn't lonely anymore. He, he gets it. Harry gets that for all the nights he must have spent in bed, you know, crying, wishing he had his parents back all the nights he wished he had more than he did. He makes the decision as an 18-year-old that it was all worth it because everything did work out okay. Well, he makes the decision, yeah, that the future is better to have than the past. Exactly. I just thought that was just a, a, a moment of growth for him, and you know there's more harm to come, and there's just so much more that will go wrong. <laughs> it's just a great moment, yeah. I think. Um I think for the character. I think it's just a great moment for him. I did want to point out earlier, we were talking about the last scene in the Camellia yeah. and how how you did say that it was such a, a a good scene with, you know, Harry being thrown back and forth between James and Lily. And then it turns, which I think is very much foreshadowing, you know, I don't know if that's intentional, intentional or not, but they have Remus and Sirius 
things being serious for me, um, on, <laughs> on the hill, looking very somber. And then Harry looks from that scene. It's the last, it's the very last image that we see at the finale of them looking somber. And then he looks back, you know, and, and those two are the ones that survive. Those two, and, and they under, he understands it now, that they've been like that for a long, long time. There's a history there, and there's so much of the um, of the relationship between Sirius and Remus that is below the surface. There's so much more to those characters than I think we get in the entire 45 chapters of After the End. There's just so much there, and um, that's a point I definitely want Xenia to raise. That's a, that's a point I'm definitely going to raise with Xenia when she comes on the show. Uh, she had some interesting comments about the relationship between Sirius and Remus that I'm not going to get into now, but I want everyone to hear them uh, from her. Uh, she has some very interesting thoughts on um, their relationship. So wait for the interview. You'll, you'll have a great answer to that question. You'll have a great um, addendum to your, to your statement there uh, directly from Xenia. Okay, we are moving on to um, the next to, to chapter 10. I love that you know now we're eight chapters later and they bring back uh, Fleur Delacour. And Brenda Kim and I talked about this in episode one. I really enjoy how they take a character who was an annoying bit character from Goblet of Fire and they make her into someone I really enjoy reading about. And when you read... I love Fleur. And w- well, here's the thing, too. When you read this chapter, we're getting this from Fleur's perspective. You you realize, and here's the thing they do. Joe Rowling writes about Vila's, and they're these beautiful women that make men go gaga, and, you know, in the movies, Ron, I love it when they do that. You know, they make them into these, you know, tremendously interesting, or these tremendously attractive plot devices. Arabella and Xenia take that concept, and like with the werewolf, they turn it into such a lonely existence. From the time Flora was 11, she has 17-year-old boys hitting on her at school. And they talk about her first kiss, and it was a real kiss, and it scares her so much. This is a terrifying yeah. existence, and she's a quarter vila. And you know, every time a man talks to her, he's not even paying any attention to what she has to say. He, th- these men are just so taken aback by Fleur's beauty. The Vila. The Vila. They don't care. She could light their house on fire and they wouldn't say anything. And it's just... And she, and she finds it amazing to catch that. She found... To catch well, how far she how, can take it. How far she can take it. And I think what she finds is she can take it pretty far. And I think it starts out as funny. But now, as she says in this chapter, she's bored. Because... She's so bored. She's bored. Nobody takes what she says seriously. The only one who did was Bill Weasley. And but they like, don't actually say it. They don't actually say that it was Bill here. They don't say it was Bill, but I think no. you as the reader can kind of... You, <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> you, you, you kind of hope. I, I think Kim was betting on Charlie, but you, you kind of hope it was Bill. But that made me realize something, too. When you think back to Chapter 2, you have a Vila. This is the person whose you know, entire life has been built around getting men to absentmindedly do whatever she wants. And she is very forceful to Bill and Charlie, and Bill tells her to take a hike. And granted, maybe he was so upset about having to tell Charlie about Percy. Yes. And well, he doesn't actually look at her, though, either. Well, that's that's a true point, too, but you just get the sense, too, that Bill is different from everyone else, and she thinks that. But one thing I just want to touch on here is, okay, look at the scene from Fleur's perspective. She is lonely. 
she tells about you know being a traumatized child who had this gift that made people treat her so strangely and how upsetting it was for her and how men tried to take advantage of her and how her grandmother told her to never trust men and her mother told her to trust some men and she was just hoping to have a man like her father and just how she she almost reminded me of just this you know a child star who just never had a normal life and it's just such a moving story that Arabella and Xenia set out for us that you really feel for her and you understand and you you just you get so angry at the man sitting across the table from her because he is completely underestimating Fleur and you as the reader just feel so badly for her. Now imagine Harry was in this room and Harry was watching the scene. All you see is Fleur being a snob. Yeah. And Horrible. She's rude. She's she's being a completely rude snob, which is like she was in Gobble of the Fire. There's so many scenes where she's just a complete ass to Harry. And if you think <laughs> about it, from and, and this is just shows you the wonder of having you know different scenes from different perspectives. If anyone else was in that room, if you were having the scene from the perspective of you know the assistant in the background or Harry in the background, someone else watching this, Flora is an ass and you don't like her. From her perspective, you feel for her so deeply. But I do want to ask, didn't, when she's talking to the grandmother, doesn't it mention that because of she's, what, a half or a fourth dealer mm-hmm. or an eighth or something, that she can turn it off? She, doesn't it mention that? It does, actually. You're correct. It does mention that she can that she can turn it off. So, you know, the good question is, why doesn't she? I think <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, and, and that's, I, I think that's a very fair point, too. I mean, I, I don't know if it senses exactly what she could turn off. Maybe, you know, there's some pheromone that she's releasing, you know, that's making these men go gaga. I don't think they really get into exactly how she's doing it. But you're right. I mean, could okay. she could she get it on her merits? Maybe. Why doesn't she? Maybe she's not used to it that way. Yeah. That's actually a really good point yeah. to bring up. I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't, you know. That's a good question to ask. There we'll it is. Ask for that. I, I sense a topic on the forums already being there we go. There we go. So it's just, I, I really just enjoyed, you know, Fleur. And then she finds out that she um, will be going to to England and she doesn't really, you know, care. But, you know, at least it's getting her away from um, where her sister was abducted and presumably murdered. That's just such a sorry tale as well. You hear her hoping to God that her sister, her little sister, was hopefully killed instantly. She was hopefully executed before they knew who they had, because you can tell she's afraid. You know, what would happen with a little girl in death either? She's afraid that her sister was raped, was tortured, and it's just such a powerful yeah. moment where she says, I hope to God she was killed quickly. And to have to think that about her sister, who she adores, just nauseates yeah. her. And it's just, it was such a powerful scene, and she just needs to get away from there. She doesn't care what this man's talking about. She's going to tell him off, and he's not going to do anything. And she doesn't care about getting it on her merits, maybe, and she just needs to get out of of that area of France, and she's going to England, and she thinks of Bill. Maybe Bill Weasley's there. Yes. Bill Weasley was British. See, you're right. <laughs> there you go. They do mention Bill. Park. Yeah. So Bill Weasley's there, and there's a moment where Maybe she, he might be in London. Maybe he might be in London, but maybe he might be dead. The thought that Bill, who she met for 20 minutes, you know, months ago, the, the thought that he is dead frightens her because, like her mother said, maybe there's a guy out there like your father, and maybe she thinks Bill is that guy, maybe she thinks Bill can, you know, give her peace, and, you know, she's if he's not dead. If he's not dead, and it terrifies her that Bill might be dead. And we go to the borough, and you have, hey look, we found Bill, and it was just such an interesting scene at the borough, because you have Hermione, 
uh, having to deal with the Weasleys. You have Molly taking care of her like she is her daughter. You have Bill, you know, joking with her like an older brother would. And, and like I was saying earlier, you know, you don't have a moment where, you know, like I was talking about with Remus and Ginny about how they're not instantly best buddies because they met each other once. Hermione doesn't know how to really fit in with the Weasleys. She's never had an older brother. She doesn't know how to joke back with the jokes at her expense. Yeah. She doesn't really know what to say. And I just thought that was a great moment there where they've come so far, but she doesn't know how to joke around with people. And of course... She's not used to being teased. She's not used to being Kidling teased. Like. She's, she's not used to it. I even love there's a moment, too, where Ron kind of jokes around with her, too. And Ron's chomping on his food, and she just looks over at him. And she you, you can tell she's just getting so irritated with him. And Molly walks over and just pokes him in the gut with her wand, and you just love that scene. In 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 her mind, you just you just have to love that scene where you know her mind just mm-hmm. she doesn't know what to do. I just, I just thought that was great. And Mrs. Weasley also still treats Bill like a little kid. <laughs> oh, she treats you know she you know Jimmy thinks she has a bad, and I just love the moment too where you know you can tell the movie wasn't out yet then when. Hermione's looking at Bill's hair and thinking, you know, he doesn't look feminine. He looks pretty good. Then she looks over Very at Ron nice. and says, Ron will never have long hair. All I could picture was Rupert, you know, Grant, you know, in the, in the fourth film with yeah. the hair over his eye. He can't see anything. And <laughs> I just thought that was a really funny moment. I was, you know, obviously the films weren't out yet, though, but I just thought that was a great little character moment. There. No, I had that same thought. I did. <laughs> it was great. It's I like, oh, Ron only has short hair. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. See the films. Yeah, until movie four. <laughs> So in one, no, I agree. And this is um, a very moving scene. Hermione has the flashback, and we find out exactly what happened with her parents. We find out that it's the day before Christmas. We find out that she's outside playing with Harry and Ron. They took a break from the war. They're out building a snowman. They come into the school, and Professor McGonagall and Mrs. Weasley are waiting, and their eyes are red-rimmed, and they've been crying, and they're upset. And they have to tell Hermione that her parents were tortured by seven Death Eaters. They're not dead, and she is, at first, you know, she's concerned they're dead, and then she finds out they're alive, and she wants to know why they're alive, why were they spared, and you find out that they're in the position that the Longbottoms are in, and she realizes that it's her fault. I should have been there. They came after them for me. You know, and, and there's even a humorous exchange where she thinks, you know, they're dentists. Like, why would they go after dentists? And, and you laugh. I cried. Yeah, and you and it's like Death Eaters versus Dentists. It sounds like a bad movie. And then Hermione, and there's just so many thoughts going through Hermione's head. You know, they went after me because of who I am. If I hadn't begged them to let me come back to this world, maybe they would have been okay. If only I was there, if, I, if they had come tomorrow, I would have been there. I could have helped them. And they're trying to tell her that there were seven of them, and Hermione couldn't have done anything. And you, you know, you know, reading through these chapters that Draco put his father up to it and you know Hermione is falling apart and she doesn't know what to do and all of a sudden Harry walks over and hugs her because Harry is the only other person who knows what it's like to feel that type of guilt to feel that pressure on them and there's a great line where just for a moment Hermione finally knows what it is to be Harry Potter every yeah, day he, he understood for a brief moment what it's like to what be it Harry. must really be like to be Harry Potter oh, oh. that's that me. They're outside building a snowman, then they come in. So Hermione's parents were likely being tortured, or they were likely, you know, being, you know, they were in terrible pain. They were probably being moved to the hospital. 
Hermione's outside, taking a break from the war for five minutes. The level of guilt she must feel just for that mm-hmm. is enormous. And I, I found it very interesting, too, that she immediately blames herself. I can't say that if I were in the same position, I am who I would initially blame. I think that my, honestly, my first thought would probably be, it's Harry. It's Harry's fault, because, or it's my fault because I'm best friends with Harry. Yeah, like, it's my fault, but it really is Harry's fault. Oh, I don't think, Herm- I disagree. I don't think Hermione would ever think that. I think Hermione is so you much like, I don't, no, I, think, I think Hermione is so much like Harry in the scene. And I think she is thinking, I was just outside, I was having fun. While my parents are being tortured, what kind of a daughter am I? She was thinking, I was the one yeah. who begged them to let me come here. I knew how dangerous it was. I begged them to let me do it, and I won, and look what happened to them. I think that she just had so many thoughts going through her head. She blamed herself, and Harry knew that she blamed herself. And Harry blamed himself while he knew that she was blaming herself. And I think there was just so many different layers to that very complex relationship that all Harry could do is walk over and hold her, because Harry gets it and well and he's the only one too it's not ron that pulls her in the embrace or you know teachers or anybody it's harry 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 know? Know, harry knows how to fix it and well i just well harry harry, harry doesn't know how to fix it but harry knows it's, it's yeah. kind of like a very tragic uh comparison to the scene with the uh fan mail for Sirius. harry is the only person who knows what it's like there must be so many times during this war that Harry doesn't know what the hell to do. Harry doesn't know how to fix things. Harry can help here. He knows he can do something. And it's one of the few easy decisions he probably has to make during this uh, wartime. It's one of the very few things he is able to do. And just another thing, that too, that jumps out at me, too, is they wonder why did they wait until the day before? Why did they wait until the next day and kill Hermione, too? Why did they do it the way they did it? Draco told his father to do it to send a message. He wanted... Hermione to know, he wanted Hermione to know that they could hurt her parents, they wanted to traumatize the trio. This was a message, this wasn't just the act, like she said, who cares about hurting dentists? There was a broader goal here, there was a message, it was terrorism, and I just love how Arabella and Zenny just kind of dropped that out there and let me and you and all the other readers kind of just pull from that whatever they want. They don't explicitly tell us what happens with the attack. They don't explicitly tell us who was responsible or why. They, they kind of leave enough information there for everyone to kind of gather it together and make their own judgment call on that. And go to St. Mungo's. St. Mungo's? They bring in Barton the Orderly. And it's just a great layer to a scene. If he wasn't there, it would, have, it would still have been a powerful scene. But it's one of those little details they throw in. Ron has been coming to St. Mungo's every Sunday for two years. He knows the people there. And I've had this experience, too. I've had a lot of people um, in a lot of hospitals, and I've, you know, you go there every day, you meet the nurses, you meet the people, you know everyone there. And it's just great. Hey, Ron, how you doing? And it's just Barton, and he knows them. And it's just one of those scenes that just reinforces how this has become a daily fixture in Hermione and Ron's lives. And I just love how, too, they bring up that they go themselves, they don't bring Harry. Because... Harry will blame himself, and Hermione can't deal with that additional weight on her shoulders, but they can't not invite Harry, so they have to find ways around bringing Harry. So they make sure that they come from the borough so Harry isn't there. And then well, but Harry's always busy. They, they make sure Harry's always busy, and then there's even a reference uh, later on that Harry even feels guilty for not being there. And it's just so interesting, because they don't want him there, and he wants to be there. And it's, it's not you know a very simple situation. There's a lot of different 
things happening here. I just thought that was very, um, that was just very excellent writing on behalf of Arabella and Zanya to, um, to do <laughs> yes. it that way. Well, and this is the first time we see the actual state that Mr. and Mrs. Granger are in, that their eyes, I thought it very interesting, and I, and I think in my reread was the only first time I've noticed it, was that they knew that they do sleep because their eyes close. I thought that was interesting, too, and I love the little details in the room. They're in a four-poster bed. They're holding each other's hands. Like you said, their eyes close when they sleep. Hermione has pictures of herself all over the room, not knowing if they can interpret it or see it. Uh, but Hermione makes sure it's a very homey place. It's a place where her parents would be comfortable, and she's doing the best that she can. When she goes, she leaves emotionally drained because it's such a difficult experience to talk to people not knowing if they can hear you, and she does it every week, and she feels so much guilt for it, that when she leaves, she is mentally fatigued. Right. Did you, did you find it odd that Ron never actually went in with her? I didn't find it odd. I think that Hermione is very strong-willed, and if she wanted it to be just her, that would be fine. I think also that Ron would be the type of person who would respect that and just would kind of hang out in the, in the hallway and not, um, you know, I think it surprised much. me. And I don't know why. It just... It was unexpected. Like, I of course ex- Ron would go in there. I could accept it either way. I could accept that he would want to. And, yeah. maybe, and maybe that's a good point. You know what it is? And with so many of these fanfics, you can kind of explain away anything. If he wanted to go in and she didn't want him to, you could easily picture Ron, you know, arguing that I should be able to go in there. I need to be with you. And I think in this fic, he is very... Mature, he gives her her space. He will sit in that hallway for as long as it takes. And there is even reference to she brings him in when she needs help with a spell or something like that. But this is a personal thing for her. And I think he gets that if I'm in the hallway, that's close enough. If she needs me, I'm here. And I think they can both kind of find some peace with that. I think that's that's just a great moment. I love the moment, too, when, um, when you jump back and forth, when... Um, it's right after the attack, and Ron and Harry find out that it was the Malfoys, and they grab their wands, and they're going to go get them. And just as they get to the fireplace, Hermione comes out, and Hermione meets Ron, and Ginny can kind of pull Harry back, and you can just see these two are just, they care about Hermione so much, and they're so angry, and they can't fix much, but they can fix Malfoys. They can go get the Malfoys. And you just see how Hermione, you know, inadvertently, and Ginny, purposefully, they just pull these characters back, and they just pull these two people back, and they just kind of hold themselves together. One of the things that shocks you about the character of Hermione in these chapters is that you find out that she knows that Draco was involved, but she isn't going to respond the way that Ron and Harry are. There is too much work left to do, there is too much to finish, and she is not going to be bothered by the likes of that worm Draco Malfoy. She is going to let it go. Or maybe she can see it logically that Draco is not the one who did it. I think she thinks that Draco was involved, but and that's just the thing. Draco didn't hold the wand, but Draco was involved. And just picture these characters. Ron, you know, is ready to kill Draco for a lot less. Hermione lets it go. (laughs) And that's just such a powerful moment with the character of Hermione. Hermione lets it go. I think I, I think it's a character trait that we should all look upon and try to be for like. Oh, well, obviously. <laughs> I, I believe Mother Teresa had it in abundance, but it's just so powerful about, it almost seems incredulous that one character could, 
could, you know, forgive a moment like that, but you know what? People have forgiven people for, for reasons, you know, maybe even worse than yeah. that, but it's just, it's just such a, Draco is such a slime ball, and she forgives him because she is such a better person, and it just, thank God you have Hermione in this group because, you know, these other characters would fall apart because, you know, with so many people in the group who are so screwed up, you just need at least one person who, you know, is that focused that they can, they can, for, they can forgive, you know, yeah. such a, just, just such a horrific thing to happen to a person. And, well, I um, just, you got, I just love how, how, how also, their relationship that Ron is so angry he's going to go and kill him and Harry they share a look they're about to go and she comes out and she's just almost weak is the kind of image that I get she's being supported by the orderly you know Ron where are you going what's going on don't go like she's just begging yeah and she breaks like, up she breaks up the they're going to go nothing can stop them and she kind of like is like the loud crash she's like I don't know if you ever saw the Brady Bunch episode where they throw the briefcase and it stops everything. It just was, it was like the scene where, you know, she walks into the room and she just, just through her presence, she stops those two. Well, and he, he feels the need to, it's more important for him to take care of her than it is for him to go and get even for her. And he fights he, with that, that yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. And he fights with that tendency back and forth over this over this fic. He promises he won't do anything, but it's so hard. And he loves her so much. And how can he not? But and that's one of Ron's journeys through this fic. He just really has to fight with his love for Hermione versus his defense of Hermione. And it's it, and you just brought up such an interesting uh, perspective in my mind. You see Hermione in the road. You know, with Ron about to hurt Draco, she's just begging and pleading with him so helplessly to stop. You see Hermione after she finds out that her parents were tortured. You see Hermione leaving the room for the first time and how weak she is. But you find out she also is so focused that she will not go after the people who did this. Well, it's showing how strong she is. You know, yeah, she's weak. She appears weak and feminine. And, oh, please, Ron, you know, don't go do it. You know, oh, where are you going? Don't go. She's being supported. But my gosh, it must be taking all of her strength and energy to get those words out to not go after him herself. She's having to restrain her own self. You know, it's hard enough doing that, much less doing it to someone else that you love. I mean, no wonder she comes across as so weak. And that's just so great. You get the sense that Hermione is is so weakened by everything that's happened, but you leave this chapter with the sense that, that Hermione is stronger than you ever give her credit for. But I love it when Ron takes care of her. I, I love it. <laughs> I do too. I do too, but I think you love it a bit more than I do. Probably. The and, romantic little things that he does, like grabbing her up and, and holding her tight, like that just makes me go, oh, love it. <laughs> and of course, just to, to cap off uh, chapter 10, everything's going so well with Harry. And, you know, you get this brilliant scene where he is trying out Quidditch moves that Ron showed him using visual aids. I think he used, like, the shot glasses and the beer mug or whatever. And he just made, he, he showed him how to get Maureen Knight off her game. And, uh... He's so mean. It's so wonderfully mean in this whole part. Well, my thing was, he has the beater go after Maureen. Where's the other beater, and why isn't that beater going after Harry? Maybe that guy had the day off yeah, or something. But, but he just so <laughs> distracts her, and he, he performs so well, and he feels so bad, because Oliver rips into Maureen so so terribly. And I just, it's just such an interesting scene, because 
Oliver, you know, rips into Maureen for becoming distracted, whereas five minutes earlier, Harry's thinking about Ginny. He's about to make the realization in his head that he loves Ginny, <laughs> or he's about to make the, you know, the, 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 the verbal confirmation of what he's been thinking all these chapters in his head, that he loves Ginny, and Maureen screams, you're out of bounds, and he's really not, and you just want to scream at her. Couldn't you have just waited two seconds? We were waiting for this massive character moment, but of course, it, it is not to be. So, and I have to tell you, reading this for the first time, I was so afraid that we were going to see, like, a Harry and Maureen ship and that there was going to be a complication. Oh, Jane. I was worried. Oh, and there's even a great scene. I didn't want her. I didn't I was, want I didn't want her. Yeah. Uh, no, it's okay. You didn't want to see that happen, but then, you know, at one point he even says, oh, maybe Ginny will be at the bar because they make arrangements to go to, to the pub. And you're like, well, obviously Harry doesn't think there's any danger of there being a morning show. But, you know, you're just afraid that somehow Ginny will get the wrong end of the stick and Ginny will assume something and it will be this horrible, horrible moment. And, of course, the Dementor arrives. And Harry, instantly, 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 Harry is back at the point where he was. Back at war. He's back at war. Every good thing that happened, forget it. He's back at war. Reset button. This is Harry. Prologue. And Harry grabs his broom, and he's bringing his Dementor back to ask if man has a two-day trip. Good thing I have a map. Yeah, I, I love that he automatically just goes back into that mindset. Like, he's been absolutely prepared for it. He He doesn't sigh. He doesn't run after it and, you know, start shouting all these curses, he does what he just has to do. He he just does it. And that's what's so sad about it. It's so sad. You know, and I think yeah. even in the next chapter, you know, Moody even says, you know, uh, it it wasn't that you did this, you didn't come and do it, you know, the not in shining armor. No one else would do it. No one else stood up and did it, so you had to do it. Well, that's interesting, too, because you get the sense that Harry... You, you get the sense that Moody thought no one else would try. Harry really didn't even give them the chance. Harry didn't... No, I guess so. Yeah, Harry, you know, for all I know, you know, Harry could have organized volunteers. Harry could have at least told someone, tell them where I am. Harry jumps off, and he becomes hero Harry. Harry's assuming it all himself. You know, my friends aren't going to be put in danger because of me, and Harry flies off. And that's an interesting interpretation you had, because actually when I read that, I thought exactly what I just said. I thought that... Moody is only getting half of the information. It didn't need to be that way, but Harry just assumed, I have to do this myself. And of course, Harry flies for two days to Azkaban. You just wonder, how do you fly for two days without sleeping in a broom? Casting. Or going to the bathroom. <laughs> or going to the bathroom. Know. It's the things that we think about over here at Polarfic Weekly. Um, you know, how, yeah, how, the important things. The important things. How does that all work? Going to the bathroom. <laughs> and you have to wonder, too, you know... I'm going to write that as a question and, and to, you know, to Arabella and Zenia, if you're listening here, I just have a question too. You know, they they knew there was a Dementor. You know, I really enjoy, I I love the setup to you know the moment with the Dementor because it sets up so much of the story. I just found it a little incredulous that nobody would know. Oh, if there was a Dementor, Harry would have probably tried to bring it back to Azkaban. Oh, he probably would have had to go this way. And that there weren't, like, search and rescue parties out for Harry. I found it a little bit incredulous he made it two days to Azkaban without anyone knowing he was on his way or no one followed him or no one... I, I found that a little bit of a stretch, but... But you know, no one knew where he would be going. Hello. You know, and like the Quidditch pitch, like, evidently Maureen goes and, like, tells them he went after a Dementor and they're all like, come close, where'd he go? <laughs> yeah, and two days later he pops up in the kitchen and like Hermione's sitting in the chair waiting for him. Like, maybe he'll pop in in two days. I just, 
I found it a little. It just seemed like it seemed like the setup was a little bit forced, and of course Harry makes it to Azkaban. He's exhausted and he sleeps for nine hours. And I love the, just the description. He pushes his his head against the cold stone, and the, and the waves are crashing on the on you know Azkaban prison. He wakes up and Charlie's there, and he has a note in his hand, and you know he's just kind of reminding Harry. And Harry even says, "Did you tell anyone? You know, I was here for nine hours. Oh no, you know, we couldn't tell anyone because we can't leave the tower." And there was all this explanation as to why they couldn't tell anyone. And then the, one of the explanations even giving was, "Mom told us to always let you sleep." I'm like, eh, "You're really trying to set up the you know people don't know where the hell Harry is." Plot yeah, a I know. The story doesn't work. I thought, why not? <sighs> <laughs> It's kind no of like, can it's kind of like Star Trek. The transporter never works in any episode. Um, but yeah, Harry got to be the red shirt guy this time. Yeah, Harry. Yeah, Harry was Ensign Ricky. But um, <laughs> but you know what? It was it was it was a moment in the chapter I found a little little bit too forced. But it sets up what comes back. Harry returns to Lupin Lodge. And Hermione jumps up and does the you know you, you can just picture the scene too. Hermione is like. You know, she's she's hitting Harry, and then she's hugging him, and then she's hitting him. Don't you ever do that again? And then she's hugging him. And she's just, mother. She she's the mother hen, and this is the woman. This is the woman who you know for his birthday gave him the book on you know don't get hurt playing Quidditch. And you can tell she's 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 she's, she's so the mother. And you know, Ron comes over. Hey, you need anything? And they're all hugging, and they're trying to explain that you know Maureen saw him at the bar, and there was this whole Maureen came into the bar and told us what happened, and you know, apparently we well they. If they even say, I think he goes, when people had disappeared for two days during the war, oh. the likelihood that they would be found, they wouldn't be found alive again. You know, and they're still in that mindset. It's, it's only been, what, a couple of a weeks, maybe a month? It's Oh, it's, it's been, been, yeah, it's, it's been a few weeks since the end of the war, but that's a great point to bring up. They all think he's dead. And he, yeah, of course. He, he went to the Quidditch pitch one day and never came back, and they all think he's dead. And, you know. Like it, a Dementor would finish him off. The, the Dementor, yeah, or the Dementor would kill him because you look at Harry. They don't have much to Well, no, look at the Harry we've seen so far. He doesn't exactly seem like he can conjure that, you know, a really good Patronus. And obviously, you know, if, you know, and you know, he's he's been in some he's been in rough shape, and you know, you know, our, my you're right, you're my, right. Uh, I'm always right. Come on, come on. But <laughs> yeah, but you know, my. <laughs> You know, the, you know the little bit of forced dialogue earlier, and the, you know the 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 forced plot development aside, you know it, it's very plausible that they have no idea how to track Harry. They know there's a Dementor. You know they they can't search. Well, they make it believable. Yeah, they can't search the entire coast. You know they could maybe they did look and they couldn't find him. They think Harry's dead, and thinking Harry's dead, you know, Sirius is. Beyond furious, he has never been this angry. He is in Harry's yeah. face. How dare you not send word to us? And here's the thing: Harry, he's right. There's so many things Harry could have done differently. He could have sent word. He didn't have to go himself. There were different things he could have done. But Harry's not going to take that from anybody. Harry just spent two days saving the world yet again in his mind. And let me take that back. He just spent two days, you know, saving everyone. No, go ahead. I agree with what you just said. In his mind, that's what he did. He just went and saved the world again. He did what he had to do, and then he comes home, he's tired, he's got a headache, and he has everyone in his face, and all he wants to do is go to bed. After he and just slept for nine hours, at. He, and he's yelled right. at, and he is not going to take it from Sirius Black, who is treating himself just as poorly as Harry just treated himself. You have Sirius Black, 
his godfather, who days after the war ended, is back up in Azkaban, where he spent the worst years of his life. You have his godfather who is ignoring him, who is who is you know treat who is yeah. who is ignoring him, who is avoiding him almost avoiding him, yeah, avoiding him almost, and just so out of touch with how to live a healthy life. And he's trying to lecture Harry, and Harry's not taking that from him, and he is so forceful in his response that Sirius is stunted. Sirius cannot speak. And I love the moment where Remus walks out and she says, Harry, it's good to see you. Are you all right? And Remus is so calm and so collected. Yeah. It's just such on a contrast. Purpose. On, on purpose. Yeah, and I think he, he, he held back a little bit himself, but he is just so... Well, and he's calm for Sirius's behalf, I think, to show Sirius that calm is how to handle the situation right now. Right. It's just such a powerful moment. And it's a parental moment. Yeah, it's like... It's I like was, the big brother all over him, and then the parent comes in. Well, I was actually thinking, Remus is, is absolutely the mother in the story. Forget Hermione. Remus, <laughs> yeah. is, Remus is the mom. Dad Hermione freaks too. out. Mom, you know, are you all right? Do you need anything? And, you know, it, it was just such a great great contrast there and um then you have you have harry go up the stairs and he sees Ginny. well but, and then you have the him being concerned about the quidditch tryouts he'd completely forgotten about quidditch you forgot about quidditch and sirius will take care of that because that's what godfather's just supposed to do and harry is so angry at sirius he doesn't even want to let sirius handle it but you know what right that's what he's supposed to do i don't have time to do it i'm too tired i'm going to bed I hope you take care of this for me. And um, I think that's the first time we see Harry accept. One of the first times we've seen it, Harry just accept that he, what what Sirius as well is supposed to be, not necessarily what he's been doing, but he acknowledges that that is what he's supposed to be doing, and he's going to let him do it. Exactly. And you have Harry climb the stairs, and he <laughs> is, for I whatever reason, be. pulled to Jenny's room. And he just yes. has the urge to go there and opens the door. And Jin, and the room is a mess, and there's you know stuff everywhere, and there's overturned books. books. Yeah, and, and the room is a mess, and everything breaks down. There is no pretense. There is no more holding Harry at arm's length, letting him you know figure out what's happening. Harry instantly, and seeing Jenny knows how wrong he was to handle the situation in the way he did, and they just embrace each other. And he well, he still doesn't want to believe it. He goes, "Are you sick?" Like, he doesn't I, want to acknowledge it yet. He thinks she had the flu, <laughs> because obviously she doesn't look well. You know, no, we're gonna, he wants to believe she has the flu. No, he, he wants to believe she has the flu. And he know, and that's perfectly said. He knows she doesn't, but we're just going to go with the flu right now, because that's so much easier to deal with, because you don't even want to know the day I just had. And, yeah, I'm too tired for feelings. And, and they hold each other, and Ginny puts him to bed, and he just slept for nine hours. He's asleep for another 12 and just as Ginny, you know, put, puts him to bed and puts his pajamas out for him and he gets to bed and she turns out the light and leaves him to himself, all he can feel as he drifts off to sleep is where is the heat from where Ginny just held him. And, I love that. Uh, it's, it's just such a great... I, I know you're such well, a fan that, girl. It's so good to have someone in here as a fan girl more than I'm a fan Really? Oh, I'm such a, I'm, I'm the fanboy usually, so it's good to have someone else here who actually exceeds me in that regard. Well, it just gets me like every time when they do embrace and, you know, he feels her breath on his neck and, and he suddenly just like collapses on her and she, and he, and she holds him up 
And he even goes, he thinks, how is she holding me up in the back of his mind? Yeah. It, but she, you know, she rocks him. Like, it's fabulous. It's fabulous writing. I would actually love to have had that scene from Jimmy's perspective, too. I know. Like, actually, oh, he's heavy. We get that a little bit later in the chapter. So two more big moments left in this chapter. We have the scene at the pub where one thing I love about the scene at the pub, you get the Harry and Hermione still have a friendship. Harry and Hermione have... Yes, I was a, so worried. Uh, yeah, Gemma's talking in the forums, you know, is it something where maybe <laughs> Harry and you know Hermione were friends, but they drifted, and, you know, as you get older, it's the men and the men and the women and the women, and Harry and you know, Hermione won't have that bond that maybe they once had, and they are just joking with each other, and she is pushing all of his buttons because she knows she can get him going about Jenny, and he is just reacting. Yeah, he is so hopeful about Jenny, and Hermione gets it. <laughs> She's not holding it over his head. She is, you know, she is not... She wants, to- <laughs> she wants to so badly. She wants to mock him so badly, but she knows this is Harry. You know, the fact that it's for the grace of God that he, you know, put his pants on this morning and got out of the the house, so I'm not going to push him too far. But they just have this great moment, and she actually tells him about um, her desire to become a thinker, and that she's going, and that she can do it in four months, and she'll be back by Christmas, and she's not leaving Ron, and Harry, you need to help me convince him of that. And they just have this moment, and one, you can tell she's so so desperate for Harry's approval, because think about this, too. Think about yeah. the person, think about Ron and Hermione. Ron is so afraid that Hermione will think less of him that he wants to be a bartender, and Hermione is fully supportive. Hermione wants to become a thinker to save her parents. Ron is completely unsupportive. And, you know, you can tell that hurts her and she needs to deal with it. And she understands a little bit of why, so she's not blaming him too badly, but, you know, it's still something that she needs, that, that it's still something that hurts her and she needs to deal through. She is desperate for approval. She has Ginny's approval, but Ginny is her best well, she girlfriend. She doesn't have parents anymore. She doesn't have She's parents. And Ginny's a good girlfriend, but her family is Harry. And, and <laughs> Harry's her girlfriend right now. Harry is her only girlfriend at the moment, you know, because Ginny's got something and else going. And he plays the part well, as well as a boy can play it, I think. And he says, I think you should go. And you can just tell. Well, and he even says, he says Ron's reaction. And I just love Harry's reaction to how they're going to get Ron through this. You'll have a blazing robe, <laughs> tears will be shed, Ron will punch a tree, but in the end, you'll persuade him. I've seen it before. <laughs> you and she's tell- like, are we really dead? <laughs> <laughs> I just love it, too. It's like, Ron is so predictable. Hermione is so predictable. You know how this is the end. You know it's not going to be pretty. But Harry's like, look, we're family. We'll get through this. And it's just such an amazing moment for these two characters that he gives her his permission to go, his blessing to go, and that means the world to Hermione. And she is so upset that she doesn't have that from Ron, but she gets why she doesn't. She's going to work at it because she loves Ron more than anything, and she's not going to let this decision that he's making define him. She's going to change his mind because she's Hermione and she can do anything. Yep, and yep. Then we have Draco coming to the bar, and you can just tell Draco having to order drinks from Ron Weasley. He is enjoying that, and you have you know Draco acting the ritzy boy part. He's 
back. It's like in Chamber of Secrets. He's bought the brooms for the team, so he's on the team now, and he's got the bodyguard behind him, so he's the big man. He's mocking Ron, and he's you know, mocking Hermione. And Hermione knows this guy is responsible for my parents' you know, torture. He knows that this... She knows that this guy is slime. He has caused so much suffering, but she cares more about helping her parents and keeping Ron than she does about him. And Harry is not going to let Draco mess with Hermione. And Harry is there with his wand ready. And Ron, you can tell in every scene, Ron's like four feet closer. He's over the bar, then he's next to the bar, then he's walking up to Draco. And you can see, kind of see Goldie getting in position to stop the fight. And you can yeah. tell something's going to happen. And then Ron brings up Lucius. And Draco uh, goes. And Draco. And Draco goes. She white, and you know something's going to happen here. And uh, the situation, you know, is escalates. Kind, it escalates, but it's left open ended. And Draco backs off, and Draco leaves. And I love his parting line to his little cohort there. Leave Ron some money. He certainly needs it. Is the intent. You know, just, I am so much better than you. You know, you are working class. I am, you know, I can own and sell you. I can buy and sell you. And it's just, you can tell there's so much hatred between these characters because Ron's dad killed Draco's dad. And Draco will never forget it. And he is so right. bitter. And, you know, if you walk into that bar, you know, looking for a confrontation, maybe. You, you don't know. We haven't had anything from Draco's perspective. But it's just a moment where you can tell Ron is ultra defensive, and you know Hermione is so desperate for there not to be an escalation. I love the moment at the bar after Ron and Hermione role play a little bit, and they play the "Hey, come here often" game between the bartender, you know, and the customer, and you just get the sense that Ron is so conflicted. He so wants to just grind her. Draco into the ground and be done with it. Feed him. Uh. And it's the first indication that Hermione kind of wants to let Ron do his own thing because she's so desperate not to lose him, but she doesn't want to so chain but him she up. Does, at, the, at the same time, she wants him to fight now for it, you know? And then she has to, like, suppress that feeling and think, oh, no, that was him wrong to ask Dan, oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's he's you know? conflicted and she's conflicted, and he just leaves it with "I'm doing this for you," and he just walks away. I didn't fight. And I she exactly, and she is just standing there, and she is just so conflicted, you know, because this is what she wanted. But look what it's doing to Ron. It's not solving anything. Something's going to happen eventually, anyway. And she knows as much as she wants to try to forget what Draco did. That. This is the guy who tortured her parents, and Ron is just looking out for her. And it's just such an interesting scene. And one thing that did jump out at me reading the scene is that when you read the canon, it's Harry and Draco. They are the rivals. And in this book, yeah. it's Ron and Draco. Harry and Draco, not so much. Harry is kind of off to the side with his own thing. Draco is Ron's problem to deal with. Specifically, well, Hermione, it's, yeah, but Hermione made that decision. You know, it could have been Harry and Draco. But Hermione decided it was going to be Ron so? that was going to go with her. In that, you know, she chose Ron was the one that, that went with her to her parents. She didn't want Harry there. She didn't want him involved. You know, and Ron, I think Ron is her protector, the guy that 
is supposed to take care of her, and she knows that. And I think, in a way, she chose her champion to say it very fantasy-like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's one. It's the decision that Arabella and Zenya made because they moved. Yeah, well, because they moved. Yeah, we're going to give them some credit for this. Um, because <laughs> yeah, how, a little bit. Because of how they moved. Because of how they moved the pieces around. Because of what happened to the Grangers. Because of Ron's love for Hermione, they kind of rearranged the storyline in such a way that now Draco is Ron's problem to deal with and not Harry's. And it's just, it's a very interesting change that happens very gradually. You don't kind of notice it, but it jumped out at me during the scene. So now we no, go I back. really like that you pointed that out. I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, and it's interesting You're too because, exactly right. because as you read after the end so much, you kind of forget that it's not canon. You kind of forget that there's other stuff going on. and You just come to accept it so much as the reality is the base of the story. You don't really realize what's added in and what was there before because it all just gels together so perfectly. We have the last plot line of uh, the chapters we're going to be discussing tonight. We have Ginny. Something is up with Ginny. Ginny is obsessed with the Wolfsbane potion. She needs to find out how to make it. She's looking through all of her She's looking through all of Hermione's old books. She's claiming it has to do with her wanting to, you know, homeschool herself for her seventh year, which you know of course isn't what's happening. She needs to find out about the Wolfsbane potion. It's in a restricted book. She breaks into And zero. that <laughs> That makes me think of the conversation between Harry and Hermione in the bar. Where Harry's so not at all nonchalant with what he's asking. You know, why are you letting her throw your books around? And but she is tearing up the room. It will then implies to Hermione that Harry was in the room. So what were you doing in the room? And that was one of the reasons she just smiled so much. Ooh, that's a little bit of tidbit information, <laughs> Harry. Because he's a guy who just lets go there, doesn't even realize he's not supposed to be saying that. You know, you have Ginny, you know, going into, you know, Remus's private book collection at night. And she's sneaking around. She finds the right book. And Harry wanders in on her. And it's the classic cliche of one person has something behind their back, the other person wants to see it. You have to love the moment where Ginny takes off her nightdress, or Ginny takes off her nightgown and like wraps her around the book. And Harry's realizing Ginny's taking her clothes off. Something's wrong. So Harry's all distracted, and Ginny's wrapping the book because around her. Like you're, like you're not going to know this. favorite line. What's that? My favorite line. He stared at her. That's some highly classified bedtime reading. <laughs> And you just have to love Ginny's thought process. I'll wrap a book around it. That way no one will know what I'm doing. And it's just, it's just, it's this humorous classic scene that, you know, it's it's just something that, you you know, you've seen in like a hundred sitcoms. It's something, you know, completely, completely normal. It's something that you've seen before. It's not really a dynamic scene. And then Ginny says, please let me go. I have to work in this or I'll feel sick. He blurts it out, and he like he his playfulness goes away. He's worried and hurt, and, and he's he's hurt. He's upset that he was playing around with her when it was something serious. He doesn't know what to do, so he retreats into himself. Jimmy kind of <laughs> runs out of the room, and then she realizes, wait a minute, we've done this before. She goes back, she gets him, she drags him into their room, she locks the door. So now you have to imagine she's wearing little clothing. She brings him into the room, she locks the door. Yeah, I want to talk about that. What's that? I want to talk about that really quickly. He obviously, the wizards are a little bit more old-fashioned. But every time I imagine a nightgown, I seriously imagine, I guess, one of the old, old-timey. You know, the ones that actually cover your neck to your, you know, past your hands. Oh, I never, I never got that from you know, this I, because Ginny makes a reference in the earlier chapters to she likes muggle clothing. I think if it was Minerva McGonagall, you might see that, but I don't think you're going to see That would put a whole new twist on this scene if it was Harry and So you think it's just the full 90? I think it's just, yeah, I think it's just like the 
like the little ninety thing. Right. And I think that's because I know they never describe it, and I'm always I can't get a mental picture, I guess, because. I'm, I don't wear ropes or, you know, I don't know. Put them the list for her. Okay, all right, we'll, we'll throw them right. the list there. And, uh, and you have... So she's in, yeah, she takes him up to the bedroom. She takes him up to the bedroom, locks the door, you know, puts the fear of God into him if you tell one person what I'm about to tell you. And it's just such a... I give A and Z so much credit because you've had the scenes before where Ginny, you know, overreacts and Harry retreats. And I just love that for once in the story, she runs and grabs him and says, that was stupid, come with me. And she just, you know, Reverses course. To Harry Potter. Yes. If you breathe one word, then I will make you suffer and his dog is dropped. Oh, absolutely. And she <laughs> admits that for whatever reason, she has to make the Wolfsbane potion. She doesn't know why, but she feels Remus's, you know, werewolf cycle coming on. It, you know, if she doesn't do these things, she feels sick. She doesn't know why. She's compelled to do it. Something's wrong with her. We don't know what it is. Remus obviously does, but she knows she needs to make this potion. And Harry is, just after getting off, you know, from being so supportive with Hermione, Harry is so supportive with Ginny. Remus will let you do this. I will help. I'll get whatever I can from Charlie. We will make this work. I'm sorry, I will get whatever I, I will get whatever I need. I will get whatever you need from Bill. We will make this work. Remus will help you. What were you saying? How, how did you think, do you think Harry's doing this because he's finally realized, yeah, I love her and I'm going to do anything for her? Or, it, or if it's kind of the, the schoolboy schoolgirl, school he likes her and he's trying to get in good with her, or, you know, or he's honestly believes think, in her. I don't think Harry has, I don't think Harry has it in him to try and schmooze and try and get in there good. I think Harry is doing this because it's, j- I just don't, I don't think Harry's that swap. I mean, Harry couldn't even tell what Hermione was doing to him at the bar. I think Harry thinks, okay, okay. He, Harry thinks he can fix this. Harry thinks he can help and Harry's going to help it. He's enraptured. He's on, he's he's just being a good guy, and they they begin to work on it. And Harry, you know, gets you know the cauldron, and and they get everything together. And then of course Hermione shows up at the door, and you know something happened with Hermione and Ron between the time they left the bar. There's a missing scene somewhere, but they're in their good graces now. And Hermione comes back. And she wants to know what's going on. And, and it, it, you can tell it's a hysterical scene. Harry's at the door with his arms on both ends of the door frame, holding her back. And Hermione, not coming in. Hermione wants to get in. And Ginny's screaming, I can't remember the spells to do the thing. And Harry's trying to yell it. And, and Hermione's like, And then Ron comes. And, like, he's just like, oh, I guess something's going on in there. Like, he just assumes. Well, you have to love Ron, too, because he's so tall. He just pokes his head over everything and is like, hello. And you, you can tell, you know. Then, then Ron's like, what you doing in here? What's going on? And, and they're just getting so frustrated that Harry finally just throws them out. And finally, Ron gets, hmm, Ginny's, you know, in her night, in her, you know, night attire. And, you know, Harry's in the room, and Harry looks more excited than we've seen him in a while. Something's up. Hey, Hermione, why don't you come with me? And Ron, for all of the fix to have him as the obsessive older brother who would go in and beat the pulp out of Harry for laying a hand at his sister, you can tell Ron yeah. has this, thank God, I'm going to go make out with my girlfriend now. Moment. Well, just, no, I think he's more like, it's about time. Exactly. My gosh, and thank God. Together. He knows they're going to. And I've read so many fics where it takes around 30 chapters to make that movement. I'm just so glad that Arabella and Xenia skip over all that. And there's just a great I moment. So they go into into the boys' room, and, you know, Harry turns around, and, you know, they, they get the, the cauldron, and they... And they and they make the cauldron invisible, and all of a sudden Harry realizes I'm in Ginny Weasley's room, and she's not wearing a lot. And he, you know, he goes apoplectic, and she gets concerned. And it's just this odd, you know. Now, you know, the the, the excitement factor is gone, and they're just they're 
you know, they're back to Scott. They're back to, you know. It's him and her again. Uh-oh. It's him and her again, and Harry offers to go sleep on the couch, and, you know, he he's gentlemanly, and he's going to put the book back for her, and she offers to do it, and he's going to do it, and he just, you know that he's going to make sure this works, and he's going to help her, and whatever's mm-hmm. wrong with her, he's going to support her in this, and he goes downstairs, and she goes to bed, and there's a great moment where Crookshanks looks content, and she knows exactly what Crookshanks is feeling, because she feels with Harry in the last chapter, even though Harry's gone, she feels like he's right there with him. Why kisses her? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Did I leave out something you want to talk about? Of course, the most important part of the chapter. The, the important part of the story. Forget the whole thing about the Dementors. Yeah, who cares? No, he kisses her on the cheek. Come on. And you, I know that Mac here is going to agree with me. This That's is true. <laughs> For those of you not familiar, Mac um, is a, is a veteran member of our forums who is. Um, waiting for the day that Harry and Ginny uh, officially get married and have lots and lots of babies. So, you know, you can tell Mac was jumping up and down at that moment. And it's just such Jen a... Jen was crying. Every, everyone's sobbing. I'm, you know, I'm just reading it, but, you know, everyone else is having this, you know, intense reaction to it. But you just have this great moment where, you know, Harry and Harry kisses Ginny, and for once, Harry isn't the withdrawn little character who Ginny is, you know, completely walking circles around, and Ginny is completely, you know, taking care of. Yeah, this is the reverse, where Harry is the bold one, and Ginny is just, you know, in bed, shaking what just happened. And it's just, you know, there's so much to come, and there's so much to understand about what's happening to Ginny. It's just a great moment to leave her character in, that with with all the uncertainty in her life, she doesn't know what's happening to her. Harry kissed her on the cheek, and she just gets to enjoy and just have fun with that moment. And, and, And it's just, it's just such a great, it's just such a great way to end the chapter. It's so lovely. And it, it leaves you smiling. It's a chapter that leaves you smiling. Now, did it leave you smiling, Jen? I'm smiling right now. There you Excuse go. It. Well, we are going to, we are concluded our discussion of chapters 8 through 11. Next week, we will be discussing chapters 12 through 15 of After the End. And we are now going to um, be highlighting a one-shot by a wonderful uh, fanfic writer named Dree. This fic is housed over at checkmated.com. We will have links up in our show notes. And for those of you who are enjoying the Ron and Hermione interactions in the story, this is a very relevant Ron and Hermione fic. Uh, We apologize if you go through a box of Kleenex listening to this fic. Uh, But we hope you enjoy it, and we will have a folder up on our forums over at potterficweekly.com if you would like to discuss this fic. You can make sure that any comments do get to the author. Jen, thank you for joining me tonight on short notice to discuss these chapters. And if you would like to ask Jen any questions, she will be over at our forum right now. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, Jen. Thank you. Memories. That's what all of these pictures were. Memories of stolen moments, of happier times. Here are smiling Ginny and Harry, taken just after Harry was released from St. Mungo's. No one thought Harry would survive his confrontation with Voldemort. But then again, no one, not even Harry himself, knew just how much Harry was loved. Ron scanned across the page of the scrapbook he was holding and stopped at a picture of his parents on their wedding day. He watched a very young Molly and Arthur squeeze their hands together and then pause for a kiss, repeating the action over and over again. So much happiness, so many good memories, thought Ron. 
page after page of happy weaselies spanning various ages. Charlie victoriously holding a snitch aloft after a game at Hogwarts. Percy polishing his head boy badge, which suspiciously read, Big Head Boy. The family trip to Egypt. Moving to the more recent pages, Ron paused to look at a photo of Bill holding his tiny newborn son, Brian. A look of awe crossed Bill's face while a tired but triumphant Fleur smiled in the background. Ron paused to chuckle at a picture of the twins. Small wisps of smoke spiraled in the background as one of Fred and George's experiments exploded in their shop in Diagon Alley, while they proudly posed for the grand opening of their store. Pasted next on the page was a clipping from the Daily Prophet announcing the engagement of Ginevra Weasley to Harry Potter. As he flipped the page, Ron stopped on a picture featuring Hermione in her Hogwarts days. Hefty tomes and bits of parchment surrounded her, but the photo caught her resting her chin upon her hand as she gazed out a window of the Gryffindor common room, a small smile dancing across her lips. On that same page was a picture of the infamous Gryffindor trio toasting the camera with frothing bottles of butterbeer, and just below, a picture of Ron and Hermione slow dancing at Harry and Ginny's wedding. Ron watched as they held each other close and slowly swayed to the rhythm of the music, looking as if no one else existed at the party. Hermione. Tears, once so uncommon to Ron, began a familiar journey down the slopes of his cheeks. Ron didn't bother wiping them away. Why bother? They never stopped coming. Ginny had tried to take the photo album away from Ron earlier in the day, telling him that he needed a break. A break, he thought? How can I stop? These are memories, my memories, of my Hermione. Ron gently brushed her hands away and retreated from his well-meaning sister. With an understanding nod from Harry, Ron left the kitchen of the burrow to sit up by the pond in the golden sunset. He'd moved back home soon after, well, soon after it happened. He felt that he couldn't be surrounded by all of Hermione's things, her robes so carefully placed in a wardrobe, her tattered but highly prized copy of Hogwarts, A History. Even her toothbrush and its holder were all too painful for Ron to see. The only memories Ron could tolerate were those bound between the leather cover in his hands. Tracing Hermione's face with his fingers, Ron briefly closed his eyes and fought to remember the dazzle of her smile and the softness of her hair and the sweetness of her kisses. A half-smile crept along Ron's face as he opened his eyes and turned the page to reveal one of his favorite snapshots. Sopping wet and muddy, Ron and Hermione were standing by the fireplace in the kitchen of the burrow with his mum and dad. His father kept shaking his hand and mouthing congratulations, while his mum was holding Hermione's left hand, examining a small sparkle before pulling her into a motherly embrace as happy tears caressed her cheeks. Ron looked out across the pond and remembered how he had planned his engagement to Hermione to the very last detail. But somehow, despite his careful planning and meticulous attention to details, everything backfired. Ron was going to flew to meet her at Flourish and Blotts where Hermione was doing an inventory. As the new owner of the store, she was taking meticulous notes of her stock. Ron planned to whisk Hermione away to a romantic dinner, complete with champagne. When the champagne arrived, Ron was going to profess his undying love for her, tell her that he couldn't live without her, and then ask her to be his partner in life for the rest of their remaining days. Then, if all went well, the ring, temporarily set to be a portkey, would transport them to a small cottage Ron had purchased to start their lives together as Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Weasley. 
Instead, just as Ron finished pressing his best robes, he received an owl from Hermione saying that there was no possible way she could meet him for their date, as the ceaseless chameleon How to Blend In with Your Surroundings book order unfortunately lived up to its promise and for all intents and purposes had vanished. There was no way she could leave any time soon until each book was accounted for. Undaunted, Ron apparated to the store bearing a full picnic basket and flask of wine to convince Hermione she needed a break. Summoning an old blanket, the two had an impromptu feast in the middle of the shop. Hermione realized just how famished she was and began to devour everything in sight. Deciding not to wait a moment longer, Ron gently tossed a small velvet box to Hermione. There, now don't eat that, Ron joked. Hermione's eyes grew wide as she reached out a shaking hand and picked up the box from her lap. Ron, is this what I think it is? Ron shifted so that he was on one knee before her. Will you? he asked, feeling as if there were hundreds of snitches fluttering in his stomach. Will you marry? Ron couldn't finish asking the question before two small tears escaped from Hermione's dark eyes. Fear gripped Ron's stomach. Hermione, are you okay? Oh, please don't cry. You don't have to, you know. I mean, really. But Ron never had the chance to finish the sentence. Silencing him with a kiss that made his toes curl, Hermione drew back. With a huge grin, she nodded. Yes. Warmth flooded Ron's body as he grasped the fact that Hermione just agreed to be his wife. Taking the delicate ring out of its box, Ron gently slipped it on the third finger of her left hand. Holding Hermione's hands to his lips, he placed a delicate kiss on top of the ring, and just as his lips made contact, the newly engaged couple felt the familiar pull behind their navels and left the sanctity of flourishing blots. Rolling on the ground, Ron looked up to discover that Hermione was already standing in front of the small house, gazing at the sold sign in the window. She turned to Ron with questions in her eyes. Ron, her voice wavered with emotion, Why are we here? Ron stood and brushed his clothes, then smiled and pulled out a key. I hope you don't mind, but I found a place for us to live. It's not much, but I think at least, I hope, you'll like it. This is yours? I mean, ours? Hermione turned to Ron, heedless of the soft rain that began to fall. But how? When? Can we afford this? He grasped Hermione's hands and led her through the garden gate. Don't worry, love. It's ours. Ron gathered her into an embrace. Would you like to see your library? A few hours later, the two apparated to the burrow to share their good news with the rest of the Weasley family. The twins set off several firecrackers while Harry and Ginny opened a bottle of champagne. Their future seemed so promising. With a sigh, Ron flipped the page, knowing what was next in the album. It was a picture of Ron, Harry, Hermione, and Ginny in front of Flourish and Blotts, taken at the one-year anniversary of Hermione's ownership. They all seemed happy, but no one could deny the circles under Hermione's eyes or the severe loss of weight. Ron usually laughed off his mother's concern. It was common knowledge to anyone in the Weasleys' inner circle that Mrs. Weasley showed her love through a heaping plate of food. To cover up her loss of appetite, Hermione would often make some excuse to the Weasley matriarch, claiming, I had a large lunch. Really, I'm not very hungry. Or, let me take this home with me to finish later. I'm absolutely stuffed. Ron knew the haggard look surrounding Hermione was more than the result of the passing of her father. The two were very close, having survived the war when his wife did not, but no one thought that a drunk driver would kill the kind dentist while he was simply crossing the road. Closing his eyes, Ron vividly remembered the evening they received the call from Dr. Granger's assistant, informing Hermione about her father's accident. Harry and Ginny were over for dinner, and the four had just been laughing over Hermione's story of catching underage Hogwarts students trying to sneak into the mature witches and wizards-only section of her store. 
Ron could never forget the unusual sparkle in his wife's soft eyes as Hermione jumped up to answer the phone. Ron never answered the felly tone, having never mastered the concept. Why talk to a muggle contraption when it's so much easier to use a fireplace? Turning at the small gasp that Hermione released, Ron realized immediately that something was wrong. Without warning, his wife dropped the receiver and ran outside, paying no heed to the concerned words of her family. Without having to be asked, Harry picked up the receiver of the phone and took care of the details as Ron quickly followed Hermione out the cottage door. That night, amongst the stress, shock, and tears, Hermione miscarried their baby. No one in their family knew that Hermione had been pregnant. They only knew that Ron and Hermione had attempted with fervor for years to create a family after Hermione's father passed. Hermione continued to miscarry, losing energy and life with every baby. After consulting with healers and muggle doctors alike, after trying various home potions and a few far-fetched ideas, Ron and Hermione decided to give up the idea of having a baby. Ron held his wife and assured her that he couldn't possibly want more than the life they had together. There was no denying the passion and sincerity behind Ron's words as he held his wife in his arms. Indeed, there was no more favorite aunt and uncle among the growing number of Weasley and Potter offspring. All knew they could come to Uncle Ron for fun adventures and secret stashes of sweets, or see Aunt Hermione for homework help or a kind ear to bend. With great reluctance, Ron continued on in the album, bracing himself for the photos he never wanted to see, yet couldn't stop studying. Hermione, very pale and wan, reclining in a chair under a birch tree just outside their cottage with Bill's child, Brian, perched on a blanket next to her on the dewy grass. Hermione was smiling, pausing from knitting another jumper for one of Harry and Ginny's new arrivals to bask in the tepid sunshine and listen as Brian read from his parchment. Ron studied Hermione, the beautific smile on her face and the way she lovingly corrected a word or phrase in Brian's work, leading Ron to catch the tremble in her hands. That tremble would grow worse at an alarming rate as her body continued to weaken. Ron felt the familiar clench of his heart, wishing there was a way he could fix what had happened and make his wonderful wife and companion return to him. It was soon after that picture was taken that Ron and Hermione were informed that Hermione would not be getting well. It was discovered, after extensive tests, that Hermione's body had been damaged beyond repair due to repeated exposure to spells and hexes during the war. She would rapidly weaken never to recover. Hermione, ever faithful in books, refused to believe what she had been told. She would get better. She knew that she would find a way. Ron asked Ginny to take over managing Flourish and Blot so he could help Hermione research every possible cure, following every avenue until Hermione was too weak to continue. Ron stopped his wife's fanatical research when he came upon her curled up in a weakened state in her library, crying and raging against the hand that fate had dealt them. The next photo was of Hermione in the hospital, propped up by her mounds of pillows as the entire Weasley family surrounded her. Her room was decorated with crepe paper streamers and balloons as the family gathered to celebrate her birthday. Pausing to chuckle softly, Ron watched Fred and George pulling faces at the various youngsters, eliciting cries of terror from Harry and Ginny's young twin boys as each face became more and more gruesome. Everyone had a smile. But Ron could make out the shadows in his father's gaze, the red-rimmed eyes of his mother, and the continued squeezes of support from Harry on Hermione's shoulder. Soon after the picture was taken, the healers shooed the family out of the room. Each family member gave Hermione a warm embrace and birthday wishes, reassurances that she would be well and home in her little book-filled house again soon. Ron recalled sitting with Hermione that night, 
laughing over their past antics, reflecting on first impressions, trying to make every memory count. Each, do you remember, seemed to bring strength to his wife, so much that Ron clung to the wild idea that Hermione could actually get well. When they finally ran out of memories, his beautiful, intelligent, charming, and wonderful wife looked deep into his eyes and smiled. I love you, Ron. I've loved you from the first moment I saw you, dirty nose and all on the Hogwarts Express. I want you to promise me a few things. Taking his wife's frail hand in his own, Ron bowed his head to kiss her fingers. Anything, love, for you, the world. Hermione gave a small sigh. Remember that I will never really leave you. I will be with you in every sunset, every drop of rain, and every breeze that ruffles your hair. Laugh, live, live for me, and know that I love you. It will be okay. Exhausted from her long speech, Hermione reclined against the pillows and shut her eyes. Ron climbed into the narrow hospital bed and held his frail wife in his arms. I promise. And Ron? Surprised, Ron looked down at his wife. Yes? Don't forget to always wear clean underwear. Hermione smiled as she felt the deep rumble of Ron's chuckle. I solemnly swear it, love. Ron continued to hold Hermione, matching his breathing to hers, inhaling the soft flowery perfume, the same perfume Ron gave her for Christmas back in their fifth year, which didn't quite mask the medicinal odor of the pain-relieving potion she took. Ron opened his eyes to a beautiful dawn breaking across the world, and a sense of deep peace in the room. It was several moments before he realized that Hermione wasn't sleeping, but had passed during the night, smiling her special smile, the one she usually reserved just for him. She looked so much like the young girl he fell in love with, her face free of pain and worry. It was the last clear memory he had, preferring numbness to mask the pain of the funeral preparations and Hermione's burial. It wasn't until a week after Hermione's death that Ron began to ache with a pain so acute it nearly took his breath away. Anger coursing through his veins, he smashed all the pictures of the two of them, which were scattered through their home. He tore into Hermione's library, scattering her books to the floor, turning cases over, desperate to feel anything other than the blackness that threatened to swallow him whole. If only I found the right spell! If only I find the right spell! If only! If only! If only! Ron chanted the mantra over and over as he slammed another text against the wall. I should have studied more, done more research, should have searched to the ends of the earth to keep her here with me. Harry was the one to pull back Ron into some semblance of normalcy. Harry never patted his hand or said it would get better. He never came over with forced cheer or a wooden smile. Harry sat with Ron for hours on end, where no words would be exchanged. Yet Ron could feel that Harry really understood. Harry and Ginny packed up the little house where Ron had been so happy with his Hermione and brought him home to the burrow. Ginny presented him with the rescued photographs found in Ron's old family album. Closing the leather-bound book and holding it to his chest, Ron looked to the horizon to see the sun finish its magnificent descent, casting a warm and fiery glow on the pond. Ron stood and took a moment to wipe his eyes. Blowing a kiss to the west, he took a deep breath and walked back home.